Okay, good evening and welcome to the October 2022 meeting of the San Francisco Animal Commission. My name is Michelangelo Torres and I'm your commission chairperson. We continue to hold our meetings remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 health emergency and based on recommendations issued by our city and state governments regarding remote meetings. For those of you who are interested in how our commission works or serving on this commission, you will find that information on our website at sf.gov forward slash animal commission. On our website, you will also find the agendas, minutes and supporting documents from previous meetings, as well as audio and videos of past meetings. So please check out our website at sf.gov forward slash animal communication. I also want to mention that we are currently experiencing delays in the conversion process that allows for the uploading of videos to our website. This delay means that video of tonight's meeting may not be on our website until sometime early next week. But if anyone has an immediate need for video of tonight's meeting, requests can be sent to me and I can provide the link and password to download the video. Requests can be sent to michelangelo.torres at sfdph.org. Uh, my contact is also my contact information, including email, is also available on our website. But please be aware that the link that I will provide to you will be to download the actual video as opposed to just viewing or streaming it. Please feel free to also follow our commission's social media accounts. Links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages are located on our website's About Us page, which can be accessed by clicking on the blue Learn All About Us button on our website's homepage. Members of the public who wish to comment during the meeting can call 415-655-0003 and use access code 2453-049-5442. Please make your comments in accordance with the agenda. Also, I've received messages from a few attendees who have let me know that they've experienced problems in the recent past when trying to uh, provide a public comment. So it was suggested that I offer a little bit more information concerning the process. So I think everyone is clear on how to actually access the meeting using um, both um, our phone number as well as um, the access code to um, be able to attend the meetings. But then once you're on, the question is, how do you make a public comment? Okay, when the commission announces public comments on the agenda item that you would like to comment on, hit star three to be added to the speaker's queue. After you have done this, the automated prompt will then state you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. You are now in the speaker's queue. If you do not hear this prompt, then you are not in the queue. Okay. Uh, remember as well not to hit star three again after hearing the automated prompt that has told you that you have raised your hand and you are in the speaker's queue. Because if you hit number three again, it'll lower your hand. And when your hand is lowered, I'll have no way of knowing that you have a public, you have a comment to make and you won't be called. Okay. Um, once you are in the speaker's queue, please wait for your turn to speak. When you hear the automated prompt tell you that your, that your line has been unmuted, it'll be your turn to speak. At that time, I will also let you know that your two minutes have started and you can begin your comments. Again, remember that you have two minutes to make your comment and please try not to go over. Once your two minutes are over, your phone line will be muted and we will go on to the next caller. Um, also, remember that our meetings have a general public comment period and all of our business items on the agenda also have their own public comment periods in which to make public comments on that specific agenda item. So please, if you wish to make a public comment concerning an item from um, on the agenda, please make that comment during the public comment period 
for that particular item as opposed to during the general public comment period. Oh, that's a bit of a mouthful. Hopefully that was understood. Um, also, as a courtesy, please try to be in a quiet location when calling in. Mute any TVs, radios, or streaming around you so there isn't any feedback. And remember to address the commission as a whole, not individual commissioners. Um, I hope that this additional information um, concerning public comment helps. For future meetings, I will include a more condensed version of what I just said and hope it will help eliminate any um, confusion concerning the process. Okay, thank you. Um, Commissioner Tobin, could you please take roll from the list of names signed on to the meeting? Yes. All right, starting with uh, Chairperson Torres. Here, present. Vice, Pre uh, Vice Chair Ozenoy. Present. Jane Tobin, Commissioner here. Um, Commissioner Iris Chan. Present. Commissioner Anne-Marie Fortier. Present. Commissioner Nina Irani. Present. Commissioner Dr. Brian Van Horn. Present. Uh, advisor from San Francisco Animal Care and Control, Dr. Sherry O'Neill. Present. Christopher Campbell of SF Brecken Park. Do not see him right now. He might show up later. Um, and Officer Joe Majeski of the San Francisco Police Department. Also, I do not see him here. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, before moving on to general public comment, I did want to make one announcement concerning tonight's agenda. On the agenda of new business, we have two items. For timing purposes, we are switching the order of those two items. So instead of the animal care and control admissions policy being the first item, we will instead start with the shock-free San Francisco presentation. So for tonight's new business items, we will hear about the shock-free San Francisco presentation first, followed by the presentation on animal care and control admissions policy. Okay, so moving on to general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission with comments on items within the commission's jurisdiction other than items on the agenda. Please note that SF, that the SFACC admissions policy, shock-free San Francisco, SFACC's reporting, and the commission governance, presentations, and discussions all have their own public comment periods. So please wait for the public comment periods following those items if you wish to make a comment on any of those items. This again is for general public comment. Uh, so members of the public who wish to make a comment uh, should hit star three on their phone to be added to the speaker's queue. And as with previous meetings, I will be facilitating the public comment period of tonight's meeting. Okay, currently, I uh, do not see any callers indicating that they wish to make a comment, so we can close public comment. Okay, so thank you. And moving on to approval of draft minutes from September 2022 meeting. Um, the draft minutes for our September meeting was distributed to commissioners earlier this week, and I believe everyone has had a chance to review them. Uh, are there any questions, comments, or corrections to the draft minutes before voting? Uh, seeing none, when I call your name, please state yes if you're in favor of approving the minutes or no if you're not in favor. Uh, Commissioner Chan? Yes. Commissioner Fortier? Yes. 
Commissioner Irani? Yes. Commissioner Ozenoy? Yes. Commissioner Tobin? Yes. And Commissioner Van Horn? Approved. Great. Thank you. The minutes are approved. So moving on to chairperson and commissioner's reports. Commissioner's reports regarding recent activities in the community involving animal issues that have been discussed by commission by the commission in the past. Are there any reports to share? I'm looking at people and also looking, I do not see any raised hands. So um, it looks like uh, there are none. So uh, moving on to new business. Okay, shock free San Francisco. Uh, discussion of support for proposed legislation banning the use and sale of dog training shock collars in San Francisco. Presenters are Ren Volpe, founder and CEO of GoDogPro.com and LT Taylor, Behavior and Training Division Evaluator at SF Animal Care and Control. Um, Commissioner Tobin, would you like to introduce this item? Sorry about that. I'm trying to unmute myself. Yes, we were uh, made aware of this uh, possible uh, agenda item a couple of months ago, and we've been in discussion with um, Ren Volpe and with LT Taylor from San Francisco Animal Care and Control. Ren has been um, on her own independently working to uh, find a way to legislate, regulate, and ban, in fact, shock collars, which are uh, with multiple reports cruel and inhumane, and we wanted to hear more about this. And uh, so this is the forum for which to do it. We're really excited to have them both here to share uh, their information and their findings. And also Ren um, and LT has a, LT in particular has a background. She's with ACC as a behaviorist. And so we can find out more about um, why exactly and what methodology is used at ACC. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm gonna go ahead and um, share my screen here. So everyone let me know when you can see it. Are we good? I can see you. Awesome. Hi, thank you everyone for um, sharing some of the meeting with us tonight. We're super excited to share this presentation. We've actually only shared it once before with uh, an aide to Supervisor Shimon Walton's office. And um, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to share it with other supervisors. But um, I'm just going to introduce myself. My name is Ren Volpe. And tonight, along with my friend LT, we will be introducing an exciting new proposal and draft legislation that aims to further the welfare of San Francisco's dogs and their owners. I am a San Francisco resident, a dog owner, a dog trainer, and a behavior consultant. LT is also a dog trainer and a division evaluator and trainer for San Francisco Animal Care and Control. This new legislation would ban the sale and use of shock collars on dogs in San Francisco County. We will walk you through the proposal and take your questions at the end of the presentation. Thank you. Do we have our slides up, Ren? Um, they are, but I can't see that everyone can see them. Oh, and your slides aren't up yet. We can they see are. you, but not the slides. Oh, you can't see the slides. 
no, no. Oh, shoot. Hold on. Let me go back. I yeah. already hit share. I'm sorry. Okay, now it looks like okay, now now you're good. Okay. We can see your desktop. We just need to see. Yes. Yep. Okay, great. And what you should have oh, been looking what you should have been looking at when I was talking was this. <laughs> so you didn't miss anything. Go ahead. Now it's LT's turn. Thank you. All right, so the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior's mission is to share accurate science-based education and information to their membership of veterinarians and research professionals. In this particular mission statement, AVSAB goes on to say, an appropriate trainer should avoid any use of training tools that involve pain. This includes electronic shock collars, intimidation, physical correction techniques, or flooding. Reputable pet industry organizations that prioritize animal welfare and the human-animal bond are moving in the direction of condemning shock collars or did so years ago. Next slide. We look forward to San Francisco being the first city in the United States to take this bold step in protecting our canine companions. San Francisco has long been a pioneer when it comes to rights and freedoms from gay marriage to harm reduction to becoming a sanctuary city. With this new legislation, San Francisco will be taking a leading role in supporting the welfare of dogs. It's the responsibility of humans to protect the lives and well-beings of pet dogs, and this is what this legislation does. The idea of banning shock collars is not a radical idea, and it's not new. San Francisco will be joining a broader global animal welfare movement. Many countries have already enacted laws that ban the sale and use of shock collars. Here's on your screen is a list of countries that have already done so. Germany first did this in 2006. Other EU countries have followed suit. This movement is gathering steam here in the United States. And um, just last month, a few weeks ago, uh, Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal introduced a bill that would ban the sale of shock collars in the state of New York. And um, I'll be contacting her office because that's really exciting. Although I do, as a former New Yorker, I still think San Francisco should beat New York on this. <laughs> so animal training is a science. And today it's well established how animals learn best. World-renowned dog trainer Jean Donaldson offers the phrase learning is lawful in her Academy for Dog Trainers curriculum, meaning when applied correctly, positive reinforcement-based methods work on every dog. We know how to systematically increase or decrease behavior without resorting to aversive techniques that rely on installing fear and pain. Aversive techniques were primarily reached for 30 years ago before we had these scientific developments to consider and before we understood the risks of behavioral fallout. And we're not saying that these collars don't work. Electric shock delivered to your neck can result in behavior change, and it probably would for us as well. But this is neither ethical, cooperative, or as effective as other well-established methods. It can result in unintended consequences, such as increased fear and aggression, which is a danger to our community. Shock collars serve no other purpose than to add a painful stimulus in order to stop unwanted behavior. Shock collar supporters will say that banning these tools will lead to an increase in shelter, surrenders, and euthanasia, which is really interesting to me because I've been working at our municipal shelter for the past five years and have instead seen dogs surrendered because their owners unwittingly sent them to a shock collar trainer who intensified aggression issues and the family could no longer deal with it. 
I've also witnessed shock collars being used in egregiously irresponsible ways in our own animal loving city. When people become clientele to these trainers or buy a shock collar and DIY the training, they're doing so in an unregulated industry and the consequences can be grave. We want to help people make safer, more humane choices for themselves and their dogs. Training with these collars is old fashioned and straight inhumane. Next slide. This is just a small sample of the peer reviewed research that we have at our disposal and more can be found on our website. It's high time we begin listening to the experts on this topic and protecting dogs and their guardians from the misinformation commonly spread by shock collar enthusiasts and producers. So the question is why legislate this? Well, as uh, LT already alluded to, dog training's dirty little secret is that the industry is entirely unregulated. Anyone can create a website, print up some business cards and call themselves a dog trainer. From YouTube to TikTok, the internet is full of outdated and often dangerous advice about how to train your dog. Consumers, that is dog, dog owners in need of behavioral help for their dogs, they don't have the time to read through the latest studies on best methods in dog training. Punishment-based punishment dog trainers who use shock collars make their money by promising immediate results with the push of a button. The shock collar industry is also unregulated. There's no standardization for the manufacturing of these collars. The amount of current delivered can vary widely between models and, brand, and brands. History shows us that rights and freedoms are usually not freely given. They must be fought for. This is especially true for human rights, who, for animal rights, because they can't speak for themselves. It is time for our animal welfare laws to include freedom from electric shock. So in a short amount of time, we've garnered support from local pet stores, rescues, dog trainers, doggy daycares, and other San Franciscans in the pet service industry. And we're just getting started. I, I started putting this together in August. So this is very new. You're only the second one, second group hearing our proposal. Um, everyone is super excited about this and our list of supporters is, is growing daily. So we want to be mindful of the time. We're not going to read the text of the draft legislation word for word. Um, this presentation, the ordinance itself are available on the agenda and I, I'm assuming on the minutes for tonight's meeting and also could be found on our website. And, you know, just a, just a quick understanding. The reason I wrote this and I did write it after looking at legislation that exists in other countries was I understand that, you know, if, if we can move forward this with this, the city attorney will rewrite this. But I wanted to give something to the board of supervisors. Yes, it'll get tweaked. Yes, it'll get changed. Um, but we wanted to do all the, the footwork for this. So this is a summary of what's included in the ordinance. I'll read this part. Um, San Francisco Board of Supervisors finds that electric shock collars, e-collars, stim collars, and bar collars on dogs is cruel and inhumane. The legislature further finds that electronic dog collars have a negative impact on dog welfare. This ordinance prohibits the sale, distribution, or use of electric shock and stim e-collars for dogs. Specifies penalties. So I want to take just a minute to define and explain what a shock collar is and what it isn't. First off, we're not talking about GPS devices that help you locate your dog if they get lost. 
you know, like an Apple AirTag or a whistle or a Fi. Those do not deliver any electrical current to the dog's neck and their use will not be affected by this legislation. Probably, you're all animal people, you probably remember that e-collars used to refer to Elizabethan collar, which like the cone that a dog or cat gets at the vet so they don't lick or remove their stitches. But the name e-collar has since been co-opted to soften the language and try and convince consumers that these devices don't hurt or shock dogs. So sometimes that's confusing to people. They say e-collar, isn't that what you get at the vet? That, that word now means electrical collar. So e-collars, electric pulse training aids, shock collars, stim collars, they all refer to the same category of training collars. An electrical current is delivered to the dog's neck in order to change or decrease behavior. Anti-bark collars and invisible electric fencing, which always go along with a collar itself, they also fall into this category of shock collars or e-collars. Um, go ahead, right. So what you need to know is that this ordinance would prohibit dog trainers, walkers, dog daycares, and boarding facilities, and dog owners from using shock collars on their dogs or any dogs they're caring for. This ordinance will also ban the sale of shock collars within city limits. This means that pet stores in San Francisco will no longer be allowed to sell shock collars. To be honest, pet, like Petco, many of them already have stopped selling these collars because they understand the inherent liability in their use. And in, in 2020, uh, Petco stopped selling all shock collars online and in their stores, and they are the second largest retailer, pet retailer in the country. So they got on board before us. This animal welfare measure is not meant to be punitive. Our main goal is educating the public about the harm that shock collars cause and protecting dogs from these cruel devices. We're looking into creating a trade-in program which would encourage people to exchange their dog's e-collar and receive safe training and walking gear. And also perhaps providing free online dog training for people who wanna learn how to train their dog without using electric shock. So if we're gonna take something away from people, we wanna be able to offer something in place. Please remember, this is only a draft. Some of the details will probably change as we move forward. So this ordinance would allow animal control officers at SFACC the ability to issue tickets when shock collars are found to be in use or when businesses are found to be selling them. And like the previous slide said, um, in all cases, it would look a little bit like a fix it ticket in, in, the, in the goal of educating and not being punitive that people would get a chance to, you know, wouldn't get, wouldn't get fined immediately. Ren and I are really proud to be leading this effort. Um, we are both dedicated to continued education in our industry, and we both consider ourselves dog nerds. Uh, we take advantage of every opportunity to learn more in order to better serve the people and dogs that we do serve. So thank you again for allowing us to present. There's two of my dogs in that picture. <laughs> um, over the next several months, we'll be meeting with members of the Board of Supervisors to find a sponsor for this bill. San Francisco is the right city at the right time to lead the way on this issue. The San Francisco SBCA has already signed on as a supporter, and we would love it if the Animal Welfare Commission would join us as an official supporter. And um, if 
there's time, we're happy to answer any questions you might have. Okay, thank you very much for the presentation, um, Ren and LT. We very much appreciate it. And uh, th yeah, thank you again for getting this all together. I did forget to mention before I was going to, uh, because of the change in the, in the agenda item, I left my notes elsewhere um, in the order. But I did want to mention as part of an introduction before um, Commissioner Tobin introduced this item that I felt that it was really great that you're both attending our meeting tonight and uh, to hear work on this proposal as well as uh, to vote on whether the commission can be listed as a supporter of the proposal. So I'm hoping commissioners did listen to the proposal and to the presentation with that in mind that we could possibly vote on this to show our support. Um, I also want to say too that um, I'm tremendously impressed by the work that Ren and LT have done. Uh, they've done so much on this concerning this proposal and have made such um, impressive outreach in such little time that I find it very inspiring. And um, I trust them both very much to do the right thing, as I know, as, as Ren alluded to and LT, that you know this this will probably make changes, as we know, as it goes through the different hands of supervisors. But I also understand um, that for some supervisors, that you know, wanting to know whether or not the commission supports it is, is something that they are asking before going forward with it. So that's why I think it's it's really important to show some sort of support if we are ready to do so. So um, I'd like to open it up to questions uh, and thoughts from the other commissioners. Um, are there is there any questions on um, Commissioner Tobin? Uh, yes, I had a quick question. Do you have any data at all about how many? It'd be hard to imagine that you would. How many shock collars there might be in San Francisco, or is this a uh, common tool that's used by a lot of folks in the dog parks? Or um, so we do not have data, and you're right; that would be difficult to collect. Um, I can say anecdotally that we see them coming in on dogs on the shelter occasionally. I have personally seen them. Um, as I mentioned, being used really irresponsibly in dog parks. Um, in addition, a lot of people use them in their homes for behavior issues that are very easily solved in other ways. So it would be it would be difficult to to get that kind of data. Okay. I can yeah I can chime in on that. Um, I, I don't know how we would get that data, especially since a lot of these are bought online. Um, but as someone who's walking dogs and in the park all the time and as also as a dog trainer i would say i see them probably almost daily like yesterday i was at fort funston i saw a woman with a shot collar on her dog um so they're not super common they're they're way more common in other parts of the country than here but they're still out there okay thank you um, and one other comment to the commissioners too, in the past, Michael, you had mentioned like a support from the commissioners. If, if it's decided that the commission would write a letter of support, we have just like Ren has done all the hard work before to, and LT to put together a draft legislation. We do have letters from which to build upon for our letter of support to the board of supervisors for this legis proposed legislation. So, um, I guess what I can say is we can move this quickly if if we get this. And that's all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Tobin. Um, Commissioner Fortier. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you both for this presentation. Um, it sounds like something I could totally get behind and, and support from the commission, but I would like to see a copy of the draft and I don't think that that was distributed. So I would like to just read through it. Um, you know, a cursory read before um, voting to put our support behind it. Um, is there a way I can share that with you? Or if you open up another um, tab on your browser, you can go to sf-shockfree.org. And it's up there. And it is also in this presentation. But okay. sf-shockfree.org. Mm -hmm. And then if you go to that website, if you go to our mission, there's only three pages on this website. Mm -hmm. There is the um, the actual draft in mm -hmm. its entirety. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, this is Dr. Van Horn and my hand raising cue isn't working. So let me know when I can make a comment. You can make a comment now, Commissioner. So, I'm going to preface this with I'm always the devil's advocate and I apologize and I agree with I mean everything that the presenters have said I've seen far more problematic use of electronic collars um, than positive uses of them but when I saw this was going to be a topic a topic of conversation I did reach out to a number of um, behavioralists that I know that are veterinarians and behavioralists Probably the one that was most vocal about this was Dr. Ryan Fulce. Um, in Southern California, he's um, kind of the preeminent guy for rattlesnake aversion training. He uses venomoid snakes, in other words, ones that have had their venom glands removed, along with um, sound and sight aversion and shot collar aversion to train dogs to stay away from rattlesnakes. They, he is he and his associates, he claims, have trained over 40,000 dogs, and they've never had a dog killed by a rattlesnake or even significantly harmed by a rattlesnake after their training. Um, it's a very unique sort of situation in shot collar aversion training, and it doesn't really compare to the types of things that people are using them for here in San Francisco. But when you talk about an across the board ban on um, the sale of these products and the use of these products, um, somebody like him is going to be very opposed because they feel like they're saving animals lives with them and by using them properly. So I think that should at least be something in the back of our minds as we're thinking about saying there's a, you know, the 1% of people that maybe are using these these devices for a positive sort of situation. I mean, the dogs that he has um, training for rattlesnake aversion, they have these collars on for a day and then they're never on again, but they, they don't get bitten by rattlesnakes. So um, something to think about as we sort of make our decisions on this. I'd love to respond to that. Um... There actually are trainers out there that are doing rattlesnake uh, aversion training That's what I using positive reinforcement. And uh, Germany is a really good place to look at because there was a lot of resistance when Germany passed this law um, from hunters, surprisingly, because people were concerned about dogs, um, you know, going after prey. And there is a 
pretty robust training program, predation substitution, which is all positive reinforcement as well. So if we look at some of the other countries who have done this already, they have found ways to train dogs to not tra chase deer or rabbits and to avoid rattlesnakes without using electronic collars. So we're, you know, Germany is a really big country and they have a lot of woodland. Um, so there, there are alternatives. And I think I know, we know that there's going to be resistance to this for sure. I mean, hate mail, probably death threats. I mean, people really cling to these devices. Um, so we are prepared for that. And one of the things that we're, we're um, working on right now is, you know, basically an FAQ with situ you know, and thank you for bringing that up because we'll add that one. What about rattlesnake training, <laughs> you know, so that we can one by one um, answer those questions as they come up because, because they will, we know that they will. And we can also look to some of the other countries that have already done this, um, you know, for a decade and um, see how, how they've handled it as well. Thank you, Commissioner Van Horn, and thank you, Ren, for your um, for your um, for your follow up. Um, I did have another thing I did want to ask you about, Ren, uh, just to make sure, just to confirm, um, there was a question about the actual draft of the ordinance of the ordinance. Excuse me, I'm seeing the draft on your slides 10, 11, 12, uh, 13, 14, and it looks like 15. So um, this is available on our website. So uh, the agenda. So in case there are any attendees who are interested, I just wanted to point that out, that this is this is part of the presentation and um, it is on our website uh, under the agenda. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add concerning the, the draft as it's seen on the presentation? Are you, you asking, are you asking me? Yes, Ben, I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, the only thing that was not on the presentation that's in the draft is, um, some wording that you can see on the website, you know, basically uh, we talk about St. Francis of Assisi, you know, some nice language, <laughs> nothing yeah. that and changes, actually, changes the, the, the meat of it. Okay, great. And I remembered actually some of that, I think from previous iterations of the presentation, right? That I might've been shown at some point. Okay. Are there any questions from commissioners? I'm not seeing any hands raised and I'm not seeing any visually or on the screen. So I guess what we want to do is we want to open this up for public comment now. Um, okay, let's see. So um, members of the public who wish to make a comment on this agenda item should hit star three on their phone to be added to the speaker's queue. Um, let me see if there are any, if there is anyone in the queue to make a comment. Okay, I do not see anyone with a hand raised or anyone indicating that they have a comment to make so we can close the public comment portion of this um, item. Um, now, how, how do commissioners feel concerning a vote uh, to show support for uh, the proposal? Do we wanna discuss that or does anyone have any, any thoughts concerning it? I'd love to be able to, to um, put forward a vote and ask commissioners if they feel ready to to um, support this 
Um, but I want to hear from other commissioners if there's if there's any kind of concerns before we do so. I'm happy to go ahead with a um, with the support. Okay, great. Okay, I don't see any. Okay, well then I guess we can we can we can put this up for a vote now. Um, so this vote is to be listed as a supporter of the draft legislation banning the use and sale of dog training shock callers in San Francisco. When I call your name, please state yes if you're in favor of the commission being listed as supporter or no if you are not in favor of it. Uh, Commissioner Chan? Yes. Commissioner Fortier? Yes. Commissioner Irani? Yes. Commissioner Ozenoy? Yes. Commissioner Tobin? Yes. And Commissioner Van Horn? I would be in support, but I think we at least need to have um, some of the vehement people that are opposed give their give their opinions before I commit. Okay, understood. Okay, so we have one, two, three, four, five people in favor. So we are. So this has been approved to show support. Um, yeah. Um, okay, great. So. So. So the show of support is approved. Um, so thank you again, Ren and LT, for your um, presentation and all your hard work on this proposal. And thank you for all you're doing for the community. Um, I will follow up with you tomorrow, okay? Excuse me, Commissioner Torres, maybe you can yes. just go through <clears throat> what the process will be now. Will we draft a letter mm -hmm. and send it to all of the um, uh, supervisors on the board of, is that gonna be the process here? That is what I believe will be the process. Um, the reason why I'm saying that is because I actually have a meeting with uh, a representative on city attorney to go over a couple things on Monday. And this is one of the things that I am hoping to ask about, uh, not just anticipating that this could possibly be something that came up, but also just in general, just for my FYI, as far as how to go about showing support for something such as this. Um, that is my, that is but to answer your question. That is my understanding that that is what we will do. Um, Okay, and then once we send that support, we will let um, Ren and LT know so that in their, if they have subsequent um, conversations with the Board of Supervisors, they'll be aware of that. Yes, that's correct. And in fact, I will follow up with both of them tomorrow as well. That's great. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. No, thank you for asking about it. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear, uh, if I wasn't clear originally. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You're awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. Michael, can I ask one quick question? Um, sure. As far as administratively, is it okay for me to draft that letter and then share it with the commissioners, um, or share it with great. share with commissioners beforehand? Uh, I I think, like I said, we can draw from previous um, support letters that we have sent for ban being an example of one of those, and um, I can send that to you. I don't know. I, I don't want to, you know, do anything in violation of us doing work behind the scenes. I think we've agreed that this is what we're going to do. And it, this is just an administrative piece of me sending you that letter. Yeah, exactly. And I appreciate that very much. So, yeah, so please, if you have any thoughts on a draft or if you complete a draft, please, please do so with my blessings because that would really be helpful. Okay. okay. I may Thank suggest, so Commissioner Tobin. If um, once you get the final draft approved, if you could distribute it to the commissioners with a note. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's why I wanted to make sure that it was okay. Um, and we weren't in any violation of doing work outside of the work we do publicly. Right. 
So okay. just to make it clear in the email that um, just it's it's for informational purposes only and to not respond um, because um, responding to an email could um, could be viewed as a discussion of some sort. So commissioners, if when when you receive something like this, you, it's just informational only. I just wanted to make that okay. clear. Is that the way you understand it, Commissioner Tobin? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. Great. Thank you, Commissioner Tobin, for your help, and thank you, um, Commissioner Fortier, for your for your reminder of that. Okay. Great. So, uh, moving on to our next uh, new business item: animal care and control admissions policy. Uh, Dr. Sherry O'Neill, Chief Shelter Veterinarian at the Department of Animal Care and Control, will present on cats and the animal admissions policy at Animal Care and Control. Uh, before we start this presentation, I wanted to give a little background on this agenda item. As many as it is, and also kind of reflect back on last month's meeting too. Um, as many of us know, a number of our recent public comments have concerned the admissions policy for cats at Animal Care and Control. In addition to public comments at meetings, people have also reached out to the commission via email and on social media. At last month's meeting, Maria Conlon from um, Conlon, excuse me, from Give Me Shelter Cat Rescue and Alina Ja, who's an SF SPCA volunteer, presented on their experiences rescuing and advocating for cats in the city. As part of this presentation, they presented real life examples of ways in which cats in our neighborhoods and communities are not being helped when it is needed. Um, we are here tonight to hear and learn about the animal care and control admissions policy, just as we are very thankful to hear from Maria Conlin and Alina Jaw last month, we are very thankful to hear from Dr. O'Neill this evening. Um, we hope that this presentation will answer our questions and also provide additional information for us as we consider possible recommendations or next steps on what we can do to help cats in our communities. So uh, Dr. O'Neill, thank you so much for your work and preparing the presentation also for your scheduling flexibility. Um, please feel free to begin your presentation when you're ready. I am giving you the presenter ball. Michael, do you want to talk about, um, you know, I usually do kind of what's in the shelter. Do you want the brief rundown or do we want to skip over that and just start into the presentation? Or do you have a preference? I'd say we just start into the presentation. Okay. I'm That's trying fine. to get you the your your thing, so I apologize on. That's all right. There's always this technology snafu, or it wouldn't be an online meeting. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, is that you kind of pull the ball to people, but um, because there's so many people here in the queue, it's being a little stubborn. <laughs> so just a minute. If I can move it to me. Okay, I'm trying to work it down so you may see messages. Some of the commissioners that you are currently the presenter, please ignore that for the time being because I'm trying to get it down there.
Okay, let me try this again, different way. Iris, are you able to give it to Dr. O'Neill? Oh, Nina has a no. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Nina, can you by any chance give it to Dr. O'Neill from where you're at? Let me try doing that. Yeah, because it's not allowing me to go down that far because I'm all the way at the top and ugh. um okay, I think I did it. Oh, you did. Okay. Thank That's you so much. Nina. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Thank you both. Go. All right. Is everyone seeing slides? Yes. yes. Okay, great. Make sure we have that all sorted before we get started. Okay, great. Let me just move my things around. Okay. Great, we'll get started. Um, thank you everyone for being patient. Um, I figure it was probably best to let our shot caller friends go first um, in the interest of time, um, because I know this, you know, as I will try to kind of move through things quickly, um, I know there's probably going to be um, several questions that need answering and I just wanna make sure we kind of cover everything. Um, so when I was kind of putting this all together, um, I decided to kind of title this pathway planning for cats um, because it kind of encompasses better the whole journey of an animal in this particular case, talking about cats from what happens even before intake with something like a policy, which is what we're discussing now, kind of all the way through um, the process to an outcome or how the animal leaves the shelter, how the cat leaves the shelter, just to kind of give some background on what happens um, with this population of cats when they come into the shelter. So when we make policy decisions and changes, um, you know, as our previous presenters kind of alluded to, you know, we review a lot of the research available, what data is there, we're listening to the experts in the field. Um, we look at our own data and look at our own experiences with this population, um, and we look at what's considered to be the industry uh, best practices, right, so that we know we're kind of in line um, with what those best practices and recommendations are. Um, and so when I was talking to Commissioner Torres about kind of how to encompass all of this and not only talk about the policy, but also to kind of address some of the recurrent themes that we've had come up um, in the comments and questions and emails, um, you know, we kind of chatted about, you know, would it be useful to kind of look at the bigger picture of, again of what happens when this population comes in, what their experience is like, what the cat's experience is like, how we manage. Um, the population as a whole, you know, as a, a shelter overall, and this particular population, um, and then kind of how we're going to measure um, any successes that we have, and kind of what we've measured in the past to make us think maybe we could do better, maybe we need to change something. 
Um, so just to kind of put everything in context a little bit better, um, you know, I always find when um, you've probably had this happen in your own personal experience, someone tells you this is the way it shall be, but they don't really explain the how or the why you got there. Um, it makes it a little hard to understand um, that. So I think if we kind of walk through maybe some of the how and why, um, it will hopefully uh, give a little context um, about um, about what we're trying to do, which is ultimately um, make sure that we're doing the best we can by these um, by these cats, right? And then this gives us an opportunity to kind of respond to those common themes. So now things don't want to go for me. There we go. So just. A few notes on animal welfare work in general. We've heard these, you know, the other presenters kind of give um, tell their side of things, and it's um, it's not easy work for anybody, no matter who you know who you are or what you're doing. And in a perfect world, we we wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't need a shelter. Um, we wouldn't need all these um, partners. We wouldn't need all these rescue groups. Um, but the fact is, here we are. You know, that's the reality um, of what we need. It's hard. It's emotionally draining, physically draining, mentally, ethically, you know, not everybody can do it. Um, and I have tremendous respect for anyone who does stay in the profession um, for a long period of time because it's not easy. Um, everyone is doing their best and, you know, everyone reaches their limit at some point, right? And a lot of the problems we see um, have a root cause and something else that we have no control over, right? But we're seeing the repercussions of it. We're seeing the effects on the animals and we can't fix everything, although we would like to. Um, we can't fix it as an agency or an organization and we certainly can't fix it as individuals. But the idea um, is to try to um, complement each other and again, help the most cats that we can in the best way possible, recognizing that resources are not unlimited for anybody, for us, for um, community cat programs, you know, basically for, you know, for any kind of project like this, but certainly in animal welfare, there's a limit to what we have available to us. And again, we can't do it alone. And um, we're incredibly grateful for anyone that does this work. Um, so I just wanna recognize that, you know, all the animal advocates out there, all the folks on the commission, the volunteers, um, I wanna recognize that we, you know, we can't, can't do it without you. Um, that's important. So just an outline of what we'll go through. I realize it's probably a little long. I will try to talk fast um, and we'll try to get through all the points, but I wanna make sure I address all the things that have come up. So we will talk about um, kind of the, the nerd data um, with cat intake and outcome, just the sheer numbers of what we're seeing come in and how they go out. And then some points of clarification um, around transfers and redemptions of this population, um, kind of what the data shows um, for that. Um, there's been some comments about cat programming and most of that revolves around behavior programming at SFACC. So I'll speak a little bit about that. Um, and then um, we thought it might be useful, you know, we kind of throw these terms around the shelter speak for capacity for care and length of stay. And uh, I know it's intuitive of probably what those mean, um, but as far as a metric that we look at to kind of measure how we're doing, I thought it might be um, good to kind of share how, how we look at it, why we're looking at it, um, and why it's something that's important to us to consider. And then, you know, kind of a very brief um, review of um, the information out there from the experts, um, the research that's out there about managing this population, right? Just a brief review. 
Um, and then we'll talk about the intake policies and then kind of the talking points that we give our front staff and um, our animal control officers when they're having these conversations in the field. And then just some things we're kind of working on as next steps. So that's kind of where we're headed. So just as a reminder, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because all of us probably in the virtual room understand what SFACC does. Um, and how we differ from other organizations, but I do still feel like there's a big disconnect in the public at large as far as what the municipal shelter does, what we're responsible for, what kind of what our charge is, and maybe, you know, what the SPCA does. And we do different things um, for, for a good reason, you know, so we want to complement each other to make sure that um, we're creating um, what the animals in the community need, either from us or from them, um, or for other advocates in the field, right? So, just as a reminder, you know, we're responsible for, um, well, the animal control component is a big part of what we do. Um, since we kind of have that contract, you know, they're responsible for the investigation and the neglect cases, you know, these are the hoarding cases that we get. Um, you know, these are the really egregious issues going on out there that need um, intervention. Um, they respond to emergencies. Um, they handle the vicious and dangerous dog. Um, that population, they enforce all the ordinances and certainly there's a component about rabies prevention and bites. And then, you know, kind of the shelter piece of it. Um, you know, when we talk about custody cases, just, you know, really understanding what that is, you know, these are animals um, that can't be cared for by their person because their person is otherwise um, unavailable. Um, they've been arrested, they're in hospital, uh, maybe the owner has died. Um, SNO means spay neuter ordinance. You know, we have that special ordinance about pit bulls um, having to be spayed and neutered. Um, and then the safe pets program, which is for domestic violence victims, and we can give their pet um, safe harbor where they're finding um, a way out of that situation that's safe for them and their and their animals. Um, and that's, you know, a, a relatively, that's a whole different population to talk about, but it's important because these animals typically have a very long length of stay, a long time in the shelter, and they have very specialized needs. Um, and it does contribute to kind of our overall population when we're talking about numbers and how long animals stay, right? Um, we do impound lots of stray animals of all species in need. Um, certainly have an adoption center. Um, we try to redeem animals and get them back to their homes um, when at all possible. We do a lot of transfers, which we'll talk about in a minute. All the medical services for all the shelter animals, including most of the spay neuter for cats, which we'll talk about um, how that's moved. A lot of that has moved in-house for us. And then certainly all care for all the shelter residents. Um, and then public facing, um, you know, we're the agency that takes the surrenders. We're the ones that do owner requested euthanasia. We're not bound by contract to do that, but we just feel like it's kind of the right thing to do to provide that service um, at low or no cost. Um, we're the lead agency in any kind of disaster response involving animals in the city. Um, we are required to provide a low cost rabies clinic when it's not a pandemic year. <laughs> we can finally start doing this again um, as part of our rabies control program. Um, and then, of course, we're responsible for the licensing. So there's a lot of things that that we do for the community that I think, you know, kind of gets a little confused with what SBCA does. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of moving parts um, and a lot of pieces that maybe the public doesn't really see that aren't public facing um, that really do impact how the shelter works on a daily basis. 
We are not a revenue generating department by any means. Any fees we get that we collect um, for a variety of reasons or licensing money, that all goes to the general fund and then we have a budget presented to us. So, you know, we're literally not in it for the money. Uh, you know, people that run nonprofits, you know, that's a lot more important to them, how they capture fees and um, adoption fees and things like that, you know, keep them afloat when we're a little bit different. So, but it gives us some flexibility where we can waive fees when needed if that means reunification with an owner, right? So it's actually a pretty good thing for us. So just some basic background, um, you know, as LT alluded to, we all kind of nerd out and try to stay on top of um, what best practices are. Um, since we've moved to the new shelter, we've always had portals and the SFACC, but um, we have customizable cages for the cats now, so we can arrange them in such a way. And they still have a pass through. Um, most of them are set up horizontally, so they've got kind of an upstairs and downstairs on one side for their resting place and feeding. And then the other side is a litter box with the shelf removed so the cats can stretch up fully and posture appropriately in the litter box. But we can also change them vertically. Um, and we can get a few more spaces that way um, for cats that are able to negotiate kind of the up and down a little bit better. Um, we've used feral cat dens since 2019, which I think has been a great addition. I stole this idea from a shelter I visited. I was doing an assessment for um, during my fellowship. And um, I think there's a picture of one a little bit later, but they're kind of a little plastic den. They have one side that kind of opens up and then a door in the front, so there's two openings. And the great thing is we have enough of them for every cat to have one during their whole stay. So it's a hidey spot. They have it the whole time. They go back and forth to spay neuter or they you know, travel to a different area of the shelter and back. Um, and then um, they keep it their whole time. And then obviously it's cleaned and the next cat can use it um, for a new impound. The other reason that we use them is that every cat has basically a carrier in their own enclosure. Um, most of the time they're in it, they're comfortable with it. Um, so if we did have to evacuate the shelter, um, we're ready to go and we can just scoop them up and move them out. We actually did a little evacuation um, drill a couple years ago with these dens with stuffies, not real cats, um, called Cat Bus. And we just kind of bucket brigaded them out the door onto the city bus and, you know, down to our fake shelter if we needed to evacuate. So um, it's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty great thing. Um, we've increased uh, spay-neuter in-house. I think I mentioned that. Um, we're using pet triage, which is kind of an online algorithm to help support cats and kittens in foster care because we still don't have an emergency vendor to um, handle care after hours um, when we're not available um, to see them. And then for volunteer programs, this has most uh, more to do with enrichment and some of the behavior things. And I will talk more about the CHAMP program and the PER program. Um, but these are just enrichment programs and extra training for our volunteers about um, how to make the cats stay a little bit better and a little bit more comfortable and help work on some minor behavior issues. And then we've increased our cat transfer partners tremendously since 2019, which is great. So we have a much more diverse group. Um, I feel like we have dozens and dozens of um, dog partners, but we have fewer and fewer cat partners. So anytime we can onboard a new cat partner for transfers is great um, just to kind of even everything out. So we're not constantly offering cats to one, um, one group over and over again, right? 
Um, we backed up our spay-neuter age for kittens, so they're able to return a little bit quicker, um, get to the adoption floor at that perfect cute stage so they can move on very quickly. Um, trained up our team on how to do pediatric spay-neuter, and that's working beautifully. Um, population rounds. We've done rounds in the old shelter. It was a relatively new introduction. We're kind of revisit, revisiting it and revitalizing it. Um, but it's, you know, kind of what it sounds like. I mean, I do a medical round every day um, to look for those kind of issues. Behavior team does their rounds and their testing every day. And then we kind of have an overall admin to make sure, you know, somebody's hold need to come off. Somebody finish with their um, bite observation. Can they go ahead and move through the system? Um, so usually we do a huddle with key people every morning to kind of figure out what needs to get done for the day. And then once a week, we have a grand round where we physically walk around and put eyes on every animal in the shelter and talk about any um, difficulties um, that we're having kind of what, you know, why are we not moving along? Why are you still in my shelter? What do you need that we haven't given you? Things like that. Um, and then we look at the ASV guidelines, um, which is kind of the best practices on how to assess your shelter and understand, you know, kind of um, what you should be doing. That's the Association of Shelter Veterinarians. The link is there. Um, the last guidelines were published in 2010. I expect the new version any moment um, and we will reassess kind of where we are. So those are just kind of things that we've been working on um, throughout the last several years and kind of things we're watching. Um, I won't go into too much of this, LT alluded to it, but you know, some people really do like to nerd out and we always encourage our staff to do um, CE. We're all lifelong learners. Um, almost all our staff is fear-free shelter certified. Um, many folks have done low stress handling, um, lots of conferences, symposiums. Um, myself and a few other key staff are going through population management boot camp right now with Davis. We just finished six weeks. Um, and that's where we're kind of looking at, you know, how can we get the most out of our population rounds um, and kind of move things forward. So that's just kind of background on, um, you know, what we do, we're always lifelong learners. We're always wanting to make sure that we're um, up with the best practices. So a few notes on the data. I know we've covered this before. Chameleon is a very powerful software tool, but it can also be your worst enemy. It all depends on the data that comes in. Um, through the program, what we can pull out. So there may be some questions, you know, if those are points that we can measure, then we can pull a report. If it's something that goes into kind of a text field, much harder to figure out, and then you're looking through individual records. So we're going to be talking in kind of larger terms um, as far as the numbers go. So total cats served um, calendar year 2021 um, was around 2,500 cats and then how they kind of are coming in and going out. So this is intake per year um, back from 2017. You know, on all these graphs, 2020 is gonna be a weirdo year. It is for everyone. <laughs> no one really knows what to do with 2020 because of the pandemic, many things changed. Um, so as far as looking for a trend, it kind of makes a little blip um, in the chart, but intake went down a little bit during that time and it's starting to come back up. And then intakes by type, how are the cats coming in? Um, far and away, the most of them come in as strays. Um, we get a handful of custody cats. I would say we have more issues with custody dogs in general, but this is not a talk about dogs. Um, we get, you know, kind of a steady number of owner requesting um, PTS, put to sleep or euthanasia. Um, and then a fair bit of surrenders dip down a little bit and is kind of coming back up again, 2021. 
And this is kind of on par with what the rest of the nation is seeing. Everybody had a little dip um, down in 2020. Um, overall intake changes of um, kind of going down 17% and we're at 16.3. So we're on trend with what's happening in other parts of the country as well. And so then um, outcome data, um, how the cats leave the shelter. Um, lots and lots of adoptions. Adoptions have gone um, up again. Um, redemptions are kind of steady. Um, partner transfers have actually gone down over time, but adoptions went up, so kind of evened out how cats are, at least cats are getting out of the shelter. And then euthanasia is kind of even around that um, 200 mark. And those are far and away um, medical, medical reasons. And so live release rates, everybody's favorite data point, you know, it's on everybody's website and the higher, the better, right? Um, so it is an important metric. I'm not saying that it isn't. Um, and we have um, enjoyed a, a high live release rate for some time. Um, we've not euthanized for space that has long since been in the distant past. Um, for cats only, our numbers are still pretty high and we're above the California and the US averages for those things. Um, I just want to point out that live release rate is not the end all be all of all data points and it doesn't necessarily give you the full picture of what's going on in the shelter because it's an outcome ratio right so you're talking about outcomes but you really don't know how the animals come in and so it depends on what kind of shelter you're looking at this data point for kind of what this number means so just if you're talking about limited emissions shelter that's selecting for highly adoptable kind of fast tracking animals well then yes their live release rate is going to be pretty high um, if you have a shelter that is selecting for or you know is kind of um doesn't have has less of a choice i would say of their intake their number may be lower but it doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, are doing a poor job it's just this number doesn't tell you anything about intake um, so just keeping that in mind. Um, that's one of the things just besides live release rate sometimes. So overall cat adoptions are up, which is awesome. Um, SPCA has decreased their intake from us um, by about 25%, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, we have diversi diversified our cat partners, um, which is awesome. Um, and then we have decreased our length of stay, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well. So all those are good things. So just some points to clarify, because I kind of these are kind of the recurring themes and comments that we've had. It's not a direct quote. It's just kind of in my mind, summarizing a number of notes that I've taken from public comment, those kinds of things, um, is that we have reliable pathways to send cats to rescues, and it allows for a higher capacity for intake. And then we have an agreement with SPTA, um, which prevents euthanasia of animals. And I would say, yes, those are true comments, but um, there's some caveats there, and I just want to um, be clear about how that works. Um, so why would we want to transfer, right? So typically this is because we have an animal with a medical or behavior need that's better addressed outside the shelter. Let's face it, no animal wants to be in the shelter. Um, it's not a great environment for anyone um, to be there because it's not a normal environment, and certainly behavior and health is going to be affected by that. Um, we transfer out to decrease length of stay. Maybe the animal stayed a little bit too long and it's starting to decline and they need a change of venue um, to kind of move on. 
and it allows us some flexibility with how we're managing the numbers and the population overall so that we don't get overwhelmed and staff and the volunteers can provide um, high quality care and give enough attention to every animal that's in the shelter um, and those ones that take a little bit longer to get out need a little bit more help and attention. And then certainly during shelter in place, um, trying to transfer out, minimize, you know, we're trying to run on minimal staff, um, kind of helped us manage that. So again, just point of clarification, not every animal fits criteria for transfer. So every partner has their own criteria. Um, Muttville takes old dogs and some people only want pit bulls and some people only want huskies and some people only want toy dog breeds. You know, it's all over the place, um, which is great. You know, the more diverse groups you have, the more options you have for a specific breed or, you know, age, or maybe they take medical cases because they have their own hospital they work with. It depends, right? So they're all going to have their own criteria. And so what we try to do is before an animal is offered to a particular transfer partner, you know, we're going to look at that criteria. You know, if they don't take rabbits, we're not going to offer them a rabbit. If they only take toy dogs, we're not going to offer them a German Shepherd. So it just helps narrow down and kind of focus on, you know, what's going to be the best match. Um, and some animals we can't transfer out, right? And these are the ones that we mentioned at the top. You know, it's part of an investigation case um, or a custody case. Basically, if there's any kind of ownership issue that has not been sorted out, you know, if they're still having some kind of hold period, doesn't mean that we can't transfer them. It just gets a little tricky um, with managing that because if something develops with the owner and they want to reclaim or something is changing, you know, then we've got to contact the partner and recall the animal. So most of the time we wait for all those holds to be removed. You know, we're free to kind of move forward. Um, so some of those animals can't be transferred even though they might need more and they would likely do better outside the shelter we're kind of stuck with that. Um, and then all the animals that we transfer typically, um, with few exceptions, have all their basic care, all of their intake, vaccinations, microchip, they go through spay neuter, and that's not always the norm. Um, you know, there are some folks that charge a pool fee um, to kind of cover some of those costs. Um, and so I think that's a little bit unique with us is that, you know, we try to set up our shelter um, transfer partners um, for success, you know, so that they can uh, move that animal along, collect that adoption fee, you know, they've got resources that they need as well. Um, so we try to set them up for success, you know, if there's a special request for certain testing um, or certain procedures to get done, you know, we try to accommodate if we if we possibly can. And so. Again, with the transfer thing, just to kind of clarify um, the differences between the two main shelters in the city, you know, SPCA is a limited admission shelter and they base their intake on what their capacity for care is. So um, they kind of focus more on adoptions because they're what I would call, they are what I would call a destination shelter. So meaning they're pulling from a variety of areas and certainly from us as well, um, with the most likely outcome being adoption for them. So they are selecting for animals that are, you know, easy to the adoption path and then some ones that maybe are a little more challenging um, that need a little bit more behavior help, that need a little bit more medical help uh, before they're ready. But ultimately they feel like okay, those animals are destined for adoptions. So, you know, adoptions are slow for a week. You know, they don't pull as much. Um, so they're balancing their numbers on what they've got there. 
And obviously they take dogs and cats only, and they're not taking owner surrenders. So they have um, some choice when it comes to what they, they pull, right? And as they should. Um, and then on our side, again, you know, we're taking the surrenders and the custody animals and all those kind of things. Um, we have animals that have to stay with us for a period of time because of legal um, issues. And I would characterize SFACC as a pass-through shelter. We're not a destination shelter. Like we're a stopping point in the middle, and then we want to get you to your endpoint. And it could be adoption um, through the sh through SFACC. But you know, for those kiddos that don't. Um, past criteria of either behavior or medical for whatever other reason, um, often they're passing through to partners. Um, and SBCA pulls a lot of our animals. Um, so they are our biggest partner and we are incredibly appreciative of that. But I just want everyone to understand that there is no guarantee that that is what's gonna happen. This week they've been really full. We have two days where they have intake from us. They have other days that they have their intake from out of county. So they're balancing, you know, maybe they took some big medical cases from out of county. So that means they don't have, they can't take ours. Or maybe they can't take them today, but maybe next week, if someone gets adopted, they'll have more space. And that's, you know, that's how it should be. They're focused on, you know, can, can we care for that animal and give that animal what it needs um, if we pull or do we need to wait for space? So they have a choice, just like every other transfer partner we can offer, they can decline, they can say maybe later. Um, a lot of transfer partners are foster based, so they've got to, you know, find a, a home that can handle this particular condition, right? That we're they're asking them to take. So they're just like every other transfer partner in that respect. And just for the numbers mentioned earlier, you know, intake has gone down as far as what goes over to SPCA um, community cat program, as far as what kind of comes to us before it goes to them is fairly even. Um, and then again, because we've gotten more partners. Um, starting to increase um, the animals that go um, other than places other than SPCA, which is fine. Okay, so point of clarification around redemptions, and this leads into part of why healthy um, outdoor free roaming cats um, should not come into the shelter because they are a lot less likely deemed if they come into the shelter. So just in general, nationally, reclaim rates for cats in this category are 2% or less. So we're slightly better, but it's still not great. You know, somewhere between 6 and 9% cats um, in this, you know, kind of um, stray healthy cats are redeemed through shelter means. So many cats that come in as strays are community cats um, that don't have an owner coming to look for them, or they're kind of the neighborhood cat, kind of loosely owned. Um, there's no one person that kind of claims the cat, but everyone kind of is aware of the cat, knows the cat. Um, and when pet cats become lost, owners don't come to the shelter generally to look for their cat. And so um, there's a number of studies out there, but just a couple to cite, you know, lost cats were 13 times more likely to be reunited by non-shelter means, meaning looking in the neighborhood, posting signs. Um, but cat owners just don't come to the shelter. Um, most of the cats are returning home on their own. Um, that was 60% of found cats. And I think part of it is cat owners that have in and out cats kind of don't expect them necessarily to be there. And so if they go missing for a day or two, it may not concern them as much as if there's a strictly indoor cat that's suddenly missing. Um, and so they delay looking 
for a while, right? It might be a couple of days go by before we start looking for the cat because we're really not concerned quite yet. Um, and then by the time they might try to get to the shelter, the cat may have come and gone already. And then similarly, you know, the, the evidence is showing that lost cats that don't have any signs of identification may have a better chance of be re being reunited with their people if they're just left where they are. Um, a third of the cats were recovered within a week. And most of these cats were found very close by. They don't go too far. They kind of stay in the neighborhood. Um, if they're usually an indoor-outdoor cat, they might venture slightly further afield. Um, if they're strictly indoors and suddenly find themselves outdoors, they generally stay even closer um, than that. Okay, so cat programming. Um, this one is a little bit challenging to address, but there's been some comments about, you know, previous cat programming has been overwhelmingly successful and we can continue to do the same things that we've done the past 30 years. Um, and I would say we've tried a lot of things um, with this population of cats and some of them worked better than others. And, you know, we learn from that. And then if it's not working, we got to try something else. So, um, you know, if we don't change anything, nothing will change. So we're kind of trying to move forward um, again with best practices in how to address particularly behavior issues um, in this population of cats, right? They're under socialized. So the cat programming, programming has progressed. Um, it's based on data um, of the programs that we've tried before um, and we wanted them to be successful and maybe you know, we're finding we can do better and the industry standards have changed. So moving forward. Um, and again, this is not new for anyone in our virtual room here about how this has changed over time, right? 30 years ago, animal shelters had lots of cats coming in and many, many, many of them were euthanized because they don't fit criteria for adoption, right? They're, some of them under-socialized. Um, and, you know, the idea was you remove the cats, you control the population, but we know that that's not true. Um, it wasn't sustainable, it wasn't humane, nobody wants to euthanize large numbers of cats. Um, we certainly don't want to go back um, to that. And then, you know, now we're moving towards TNR, trap, neuter, release. Great. So we're moving forward, we're doing some population control. Um, and I, that's, no one's saying that that shouldn't continue, but then the approach kind of even develops further and say, okay, it's not just TNR. Um, but we have multiple strategies to try to deliver the best outcomes for these cats. And so it's TNR, it's return to field, um, it's taking care of the orphan kittens, which we've already been doing, and it's talking to the public about kind of how to manage these cats where they are. Okay. So free roaming cats or community cats, that's it. Um, so, you know, we have to kind of put this into this category um, and it's difficult because, you know, a free roaming cat is basically any outdoor cat that doesn't have like clear evidence of an ownership, right? And a lot of cats don't wear collars. I mean, I can think of three neighborhood cats around here and I know who they belong to, but they don't have a collar on. Um, and so it's a little challenging to just to be able to look at a cat and kind of perceive their level of care, um, you know, kind of assess, you know, which category they might fall into. Um, but the from our perspective, you know, any strategy that we use is going to apply to all the cats, um, to all community cats. And it can be fluid over time. You know, it can kind of change. So this is a copy of um, a slide from the 2019 presentation when we were talking more about um, SBCA's program about feral queens. 
but you know the same is true parts of it today that kind of feed into um, the policy is that indiscriminate impounds of all cats and kittens um, did not have good outcomes for the cats. Um, we had lots of illness, fading kittens, and increased length of stay. And as we'll get into later, the longer an animal stays in care, the more likely they are to have behavior problems, health problems, um, et cetera. So um, behavior treatments and plans for kittens under five months of age, Mixed success. Um, I think what we found is that um, we tried them in foster, we tried them in shelter, um, and that older, um, the ones that kind of skewed a little bit older, kind of came back with the same problems. And then we're kind of stuck with a youngish cat that um, maybe could have been put back with a TNR, um, but then we kind of tried to see, you know, maybe they would kind of turn around and be more social and adoptable. And we kept them in care for a long time. And so now we're kind of in this gray zone where they can't really go back, but they can't really go to the adoption floor. And so then we have to find some kind of transfer option for them. And that became really challenging. So same, this is, you know, kind of old, old slide, but just kind of around the same vein. So we limited the scope of the behavior, fostering and intervention for kittens three months of age and under, um, which seemed to work a whole lot better. We we're often able to get that age group to kind of turn around and make it to the adoption floor. You know, we're still seeing the unweaned orphans come into ACC, still have a very robust foster program for them, you know, triage everyone and basically get everyone what they need when it's the appropriate time to do so, right? And then just a note about um, some of the behavior programming, um, you know, LT alluded to this as well, as far as, you know, we want, it's a parallel from the dogs, you know, we want it to be a positive experience, we want it to be positive reinforcement. Um, and there's been some comments about, you know, some of the under-socialized kittens, and you can just kind of wrap them up in a towel and hold them close to you until they stop um, reacting. Um, but that is a very negative experience for the cats. Um, and so they just kind of learn to kind of shut down to this really unpleasant experience. And so we're moving away from kind of the, you know, punishment and negative side of things to affect a behavior that we want into trying to make it a little bit more positive for the cat. And these are adult cats in the pictures, obviously, but all these cats are exhibiting um, a pretty high score of fear, anxiety, and stress. Um, and these cats all need interventions um, to help them with this behavior. Maybe we need to alter their enclosure. Maybe they need a place to hide, um, you know, but basically, you know, what we've moved to is it's the cat's choice at this point um, that we're not going to force it on them. And it's really up to the cat um, to decide what it is, you know, how they want to interact with the humans and, um, you know, what kind of response they're going to have to this. So we've got two programs. One is the CHAMP program, which is a cute acronym for Caregivers Helping Animals Make Progress. Um, and this is for um, cats that are more social, maybe shy, shy, quiet, a little anxious in the shelter, and maybe they would be better suited, um, obviously, in a foster home, right? So this is more of a foster-based program. Uh, maybe they pass behavior, but they're staying an extra long time for whatever reason, and they're starting to deteriorate. So we want to intervene, get them out of the shelter, have some folks work with them one-on-one -on -one, um, to increase their chances of being adoptable, right? And these are, again, that, that special age, that really um, important developmental window 
um, where we can do this intervention and hopefully make it positive and kind of desensitize them to handling and doing some counter conditioning, but making it as positive as possible for the cat. And then the second one is kind of the in-house version of that, which is PER, another cute acronym, um, which is kind of a revamp of what was the old version of the Orange Cat program, which is a high level uh, volunteer program to work with the cats that um, maybe can't go to foster. These would be our long stay cats. Maybe they're in a stray hold. Maybe they are one of those owner in the hospital, long-term custody cases, um, and they need a little bit of help in the, in the shelter. So um, we had a consultant come in and talk to the volunteers and the B&T team and kind of came up with, you know, using fear-free sheltering techniques, um, using some interactions as consensual and the cat's choice and building trust. And, you know, it's kind of up to the cat how they respond, right? And so these are the long-term cats um, that maybe need some help, um, mild behavior issues. And then the notes on these cats are great. I mean, the volunteers do a great job. Um, there's a monitoring sheet on everybody's kennel and they will write down what their interaction was like and they will kind of give a score on what they feel like the fear, anxiety, and stress is for the animals. And I always read those before I'm gonna go in and do an exam because it kind of tells you what the cat likes or dislikes or maybe he was good for the first three minutes, but then got a little overstimulated. So, you know, that tells me kind of how to approach the cat, which is great information to have. Okay, so just to kind of summarize, um, coming into the shelter is not without risk for this population. So we know that the shelter is never a great place to be for any animal, even in a really nice facility with awesome care, um, it's still an institution, right? It's still a cat in a cage. It's still not the normal environment for the cat, whether that's a home or outdoors. Um, these cats um, can deteriorate the longer that they stay, which makes them less likely to be adoptable. Um, we try and manage the best we can all the negative effects of being in the shelter, but all of them um, cope in different ways, right? And that's kind of up to the cat. So, you know, our concern is that some of these cats coming in might be, you know, we might be rehoming somebody's cat. Um, who, you know, the cat already had a home and then was lost, but because again, the reclaim rate is so low and owners delay coming in to look in the shelter, um, we could be placing cats um, in homes that already had a home. And then we're kind of using that space for cats that really need to be in the shelter that really have no other options that really do need to come in. Um, and then the behavior interventions, you know, it's most um, beneficial when we're in that sweet spot of the developmental um, piece with those um, kittens. And we want to make everything as positive as possible. And it depends on what the cat, you know, the cat's personality and what their response is. So it's really up to the cat. And then this is a comment that we've heard a few times as well, you know, that new building affords us the opportunity to take in more animals. Um, and yes, the new building is amazing um, and it's not crumbling down around our ears, um, but it has basically the same number of enclosures and the same people running it. Um, so the enclosures are much better, much more flexible, set up in a way that helps us kind of manage um, the population and again is a lot more flexible with how we kind of arrange everybody um, but we didn't gain anything in physical space um, and we didn't gain anything in people there's one of the um, 
cat dens there in the background when I was trying to describe earlier. So everybody has one of those during their stay. So, you know, even in the last few months, we've been over capacity on numerous occasions, and this is kind of new territory for us. Um, and it's, you know, we've had the hoarding cases. We've had the rabbit hoarding case, I think I mentioned. We've still got probably 20 rabbits on site and more in foster that we don't have room for. Um, we had a cat hoarding case with about 20 cats that all came all at once. And then just last week, we had a dog hoarding case, 35 dogs coming in from the same home. We didn't have enough space for them, so SPCA is kind enough to be um, housing some of them for us as well. But, you know, those are the cases that we're here for. Those animals need to come into the shelter, no doubt about it, for a variety of reasons. But when we um, have other animals there for different reasons, or again, the idea being, you know, do they really need to be there? How long do they need to stay? Could they be better served outside of the shelter? Gives us the opportunity to then use that space and resources for those animals that really truly need it. So this is where we get into capacity for care. So now we're going to nerd out on all the shelter terms and y'all are going to be experts um, by the end of this. But this brings us to capacity for care, which is just like what it sounds like. It means meeting the needs of every animal in our care, regardless of how they came in, their age, their status, their personality. We need to give them what they need. And can we do that? And so we need to acknowledge, can we do it? And are we the best resource for them? So again, we've seen this before, I won't go over it again, but these are all the things that we are either required to do or do do because we think it's the right thing to do. Um, and so anytime we can look at a situation of diverting intake, if we can prevent an animal coming into the shelter, that would be great. It's better for the animal. Um, and usually it's better for the person involved if there is one as well. Right, so we're always wanting to look for those cases. And when we're talking about this population of cats, that's why we're looking at that, you know, are we the best place? So just again, back to capacity, there's kind of four ways to look at it. Physical holding is literally the physical space where you can house an animal, right? And so everything is there for hopefully a finite period of time, one way or the other, hopefully it is a short stay, but then we also have to make room for isolation um, and disaster and emergency sheltering, which is like these hoarding cases that come in. So at any point in time, the industry standard is don't have more than 80% of your capacity filled at any point in time, so you can pivot if you need to. And like I say, there's been times you've all seen the messages going out on Facebook, please delay surrendering your dog, rabbit, cat, other for a period of time because we're full. Um, and that literally means we have no physical space anymore. And that's detrimental to the animals it's very stressful for staff trying to keep up and making sure that they're giving the best care that they can. And then the next kind of calculation would be adoption driven capacity. And we mentioned this before when we were talking about kind of the goal. And this is like, what's your perfect number for animals that should be up for adoption so that they move through quickly and they have an optimal length of stay, right? So the more you have and the more choices there are, just the more animals, the longer they stay. And then that kind of backs up over time, right? So I went through and counted all the enclosures. I had dogs in there just as a reference because I was counting, so why not include the dogs? Um, but that's basically kind of a breakdown of how much physical space that we have. Um, and they're, you know, kind of by category, the community cat room and the custody room are behind um, locked doors. You know, they're not in public view. Certainly we have um, isolation and these are four different rooms that we can kind of play around with because often we have ringworm going in one or pen luke in another. 
and URI in a different one. So we have different needs um, that need to be separated. Um, and again, we have some flexibility where we could squeeze a few more enclosures in there if we kind of rearrange the shelving. Um, but we know that poor housing contributes to disease and stress for the animals. So we're not in a place where we're thinking of, you know, closing up all the portals and putting every cat in a two by two cage. Um, it's just not appropriate care. Um, and it's not going to get us, we're not going to gain anything from that in the long, in the long term. So the different kind of styles, you know, there's four big condos with the glass. Not every cat likes that, but if we have two, you know, adult cats that are, you know, used to being together you know, as a family, that might be working for them. Um, so it gives us a lot of flexibility, but the, the numbers um, are about the same. And then just more math about adoption-driven capacity, right? So last year, height of the season, for every seven kittens that came in per day, five left. So that leaves two extra kittens at the end of every day. And by the end of a week, you have 14 extra kittens that need to leave the shelter other than adoption pathway, right? So this is where our transfer partners come in and SPCA has been amazing. You know, we showed them this metric and it's like, if y'all could just pull those 14 extra kittens for us per week, would even everything out and we can stay kind of within our capacity. And they've been tremendous on helping us do that. Our kind of sweet spot for that kitten room is um, 10 enclosures, which usually works out to be about 20 to 22 kittens available at any given time. And they seem to move a lot quicker. More than that, everybody slows down. I think they get overwhelmed with the change, you know, too few. And then people think, oh my gosh, where are all the kittens? Usually that means they're in foster. It doesn't mean we don't have any. Um, it just usually means they're in foster and they're growing up and they're not quite ready for spay neuter yet. Um, and then we have too many, you know, then it becomes everybody stays longer. We get um, kittens that are getting sick and adopters just have too many choices um, and kind of can't make that final decision. So we try to keep it in that nice spot. And then the two other metrics for capacity are staff, um, staff capacity. So not only do you have to have enclosures, but you've got to have the staff to do the care and feeding and everything else. Um, so even if you have enough physical space, maybe you don't have enough bodies um, to be able to provide adequate care, right? And then capacity for flow through, and this has to do with services, right? So all the animals coming in get intake, they need spay neuter, they need a behavior assessment, they need a medical exam, um, all those kind of things. And if any one piece of the shelter isn't moving quite right, then it creates a backup effect. So all of us are super on top of trying to make sure that our piece is done um, so that the next piece can move forward. And just an example, we don't need to go through all the math. It's here if you want to look at how to calculate um, minutes of daily care. Um, most of the recommendations are um, suggesting that it's about 15 minutes per animal per day for just basic cleaning and feeding. Um, and also monitoring. Our staff, our animal care staff does an amazing job um, of monitoring what goes on with the animals. They're usually the first one in there and they're cleaning up the pee and the poo and they will write down on that sheet for me, is the animal eating? Was there vomit in the cage? Was there diarrhea? Has the litter box been used? And I look at that when I do my rounds um, to see if there's a problem. Somebody's not eating a couple days. Somebody's not used the litter box. That's an issue. Um, so super important that they take that time. And when we're full, those sheets don't get filled out because they're so stressed. You know, the shelter's going to open by noon. I've got to have all my cleaning ready and done and put away so that the public can be here. Um, so just an example, um, typically we have six animal care attendants per day. They're doing, <clears throat> excuse me, the cleaning and the feeding. 
calculate all the minutes. Um, I talked to their supervisor and they're like, well, really out of all those hours, you know, take out this much because they're doing the impounds, they're doing releases, they're doing adoption counseling, get acquainted with dogs, cats, rabbits, what have you. So really care time comes down to, you know, if we figure that out, 152 animals can be cared for. And then when I made this slide back in July, there were 221 animals on site. So you can see how there's a big disconnect. Now you can, you know, kind of sneak away with there's two dogs in one enclosure or three kittens in one enclosure. Maybe you need a little less time for them. Um, but we want to make sure that our staff feels like they have um, the time they need um, to do the job that they need to do, right? And care for the animals appropriately. I'm not going to read this to you, but this is kind of copied and pasted from our behavior SOP about behavior assessments. Um, and just to make clear that it is not uncommon for animals to have multiple behavior assessments throughout their stay. Um, usually B&T staff will give the animals a settling in period of two to three days because, you know, we're beholden to a hold period, um, a minimum of that time. So it makes sense for them to settle and then do an assessment. But if at any time, you know, a staff member or a volunteer feels like this animal has changed um, behaviorally one way or other, they will reassess and they will continue to reassess um, and we will give that animal the best chance of you know kind of passing that um, exam so that they can move on to um, adoption but sometimes it's not appropriate but um, they're looking and they're looking regularly and they will do a recheck right medical assessments that's my team's job you know if we're behind nothing else can move forward either so every animal gets an exam again that can change over time um, we often help out, of course, with the investigational exams and the hoarding cases, which takes a tremendous amount of time to work through. And then we're always getting, you know, some kind of emergent or urgent case, usually from the field, sometimes over the counter. Um, treatment um, is no small feat. It takes a lot of hours to treat cats um, for ringworm and for URI, um, a good many hours spent um, in those isolation wards trying to get those guys to clear and move forward. And ringworm can be you know, weeks long process to get those guys to clear. It's really intensive. And then you know, what's our capacity for spay neuter to get these guys moving through, right? I mentioned this before, as far as um, we have, do have a contract with SPCA to do spay neuter for us. I know I've told the commission before, um, you know, post pandemic, they were doing four animals, four days a week, and it was really hard to keep up. They do dogs and cats. Um, none of the rabbits though, boy, I wish they did. Um, and so, you know, we kind of picked, had to pick up so that we can get the cats and kittens moving through quickly. So as their um, numbers have kind of gone down, ours have gone way up, and that's certainly um, a big commitment for our time, um, for surgery time, but not only that, but since it's only usually two of us today, um, you know, there's also all the preparation and um, sterilization and getting everything ready for the next day, and we're doing that too. So, um, Shelter Med uh, SPCA is gonna has increased their capacity for spay neuter a little bit. Instead of doing four, we're on a point system, so usually we can send five or six animals, a mix of dogs and cats. Um, hopefully, they will continue to you know kind of get up to five days a week and relieve some of this um, for us. So basically, backing up at any point is gonna uh, lead to an increased length of stay. And, you know, everybody has a different time that they need to stay, right? So they need to stay long enough for what we can give them and what they need. And ideally, that's as short as possible. So if they come in and they have URI, 
you know, we're talking about 10 to 12 days before they clear. They come in and have ringworm. It may be a month or so um, if they need care. It, it kind of depends on the situation, but we want to give them what they need um, and then get them moving along. So why is it important? Um, because it correlates to um, a higher rate of acquired disease um, for cats, particularly you know, if they're there for longer than two weeks, there's a high probability that they're going to get sick. Um, boy, in the old shelter, we used to have this problem all the time. The URI ward would be filled with animals and it would take a good hour to get through all the treatments for that room. It's unusual that we have shelter acquired disease like this because we're moving them through quicker. Um, and so if we have sick cats, it's usually because they come in sick, um, which is great. So longer length of stay, same problem with behavior, higher stress scores all across all species, the longer they stay. Um, and then again, the longer they stay, the more everything backs up and we have less capacity for other animals coming in. So again, we're a stopover point. We want them to move on to their forever placement and the better off they'll be uh, mentally and physically, right? So I was going to play this cartoon. It's really hokey. And I know you guys are sick of me talking, but we could not get it to play. And um, we tried and tried, but it is part of the presentation. It's a link. Um, and so if you want to watch it, if you're feeling goofy one of these days, it will talk about length of stay. And basically you have shelter A and shelter B, and both of them have the same number of intakes and the same amount of adoptions. One has a longer length of stay and guess what? That shelter gets crowded. Um, so that just makes sense. It's just a, a numbers game when that happens. So we pay attention to length of stay if anybody's lingering too long. Um, over the years, we've managed to whittle it down. I sure would like to see it shorter than that. Um, but if we get more efficient um, and kind of change some things, hopefully we will. But the more animals in, the longer they stay, and then it all kind of snowballs from there, right? So our main goal is to provide the right care, whatever that needs to be. Maybe it's a cat that just needs TNR. Maybe it's a cat that needs treatment for URI at the right place. Maybe the shelter is not the right place for this cat. Um, maybe it is um, the community cat clinic um, and they just need to come in for surgery and go out um, the right time. You know, this has to do with, you know, what our capacity is at that time. You know, can we delay coming in if it's a surrender? Um, is it urgent and they need to come right now? And then the right outcome, we want the best outcome for the cats. That's really everyone's goal, right? Is to have a happy, happy healthy cat um, at the end of all this. Um, sometimes if um, they're having a lot of pain and suffering for whatever reason, um, maybe the right outcome is euthanasia. Um, but in, you know, in our case, most of the time it is not, um, but we wanna do right by each animal. And so we're looking at, you know, not only the individual, but also what's happening as a whole in the shelter, which is what we kind of went through. You know, that the pathway planning and the population management is a very active and labor intensive process. It is something we look at every day um, and we try and get those animals again to their endpoint, whatever that endpoint may be as quickly as possible and make sure nobody's getting kind of lost in the cracks. So now we're on to strategies for managing community cats and all these topics have been discussed already so i don't think it comes as any surprise to any of this audience but um this is kind of a summary that i'm going to go through with a recent paper of kind of like here's here's all your choices for managing community cats not one of them is perfect you probably need to do more than one um, but just understand kind of the pros and cons of which option that you choose right so we want to consider the wildlife we've already had that you know some comments about that public health, 
Um, is it a nuisance issue, like a colony that needs to be addressed? And certainly we wanna promote health and welfare for every cat. Um, any method we pick um, is gonna be scientifically based and have some data around it and something that is sustainable, right? There's not one thing that's gonna work and then we need to assess it and reassess it to see if it's something that's working. Don't invest in things that are ineffective, you know, kind of move forward from those things and use your resources appropriately. That just makes sense. So basically you've got three choices. Everything comes into the shelter um, by removing those cats from where they are and that, you know, removing them could be adopting them or relocating them or euthanizing them, removal of some, of some sort. Um, you can admit them to the shelter, sterilize them and return them, you know, TNR programs, which I think we're all fans of, or you can leave them in place and you can give referrals for mitigation strategies or not. And again, nothing is perfect. Everyone will have their own opinion on maybe what is best. Um, it has to be practical. It has to be manageable. Um, and again, no one has unlimited resources. So when we remove um, cats from the community, it does not necessarily mean that the population decreases significantly unless you reach that critical threshold of over half the cats removed, which like seems like an impossible task, right? There's so many cats out there. And I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't try to um, remove the cats that need to be removed. We'll get to that in a second. But, you know, when cats are removed, then it's, you know, more resources for the animals that are already there. Um, you can see an increased birth rate. Um, with you have higher litter numbers, you often have feeding kittens in that situation um, and disease in a population that was stable, but then now suddenly has animals removed from it. So trying to keep a, a, an ecosystem stable, um, the impact of removing a cat, whether regardless of how they're removed, is going to be the same. So the estimation is that, you know, 50% removal to get this kind of population control is admission of 15 million cats. And that's just an incredible, scary number to even think about um, those numbers of animals coming into the shelter and what that impact would be, right? So when is it appropriate for free roaming cats to come in? If this part of a TNR program with the community cat program, it absolutely makes sense. You know, if there's a kind of problem colony, um, then, a, you know, a targeted um, intense um, plan for that group makes complete and total sense. Um, we want to see any cats that are sick or injured or not thriving. Um, we want to see the truly orphaned kittens. Um, and, you know, again, we've kind of talked through the algorithm for how to figure that out. Um, if there's known abandonment, um, if there's an exigent risk of environmental factors, and I know this is a sticking point for everyone, and it is difficult to understand, right? There is a risk coming into the shelter um, because there's a risk that the animal will not do well. Certainly it is stressful. Um, it is not without consequence. And being an outside cat has risks too. Um, we all understand that. Um, and it's just the reality of kind of what we're dealing with. I mean, if every cat had a family and was kept indoors, again, would we all be out of a job? Um, but that's just not the reality of what's happening. So of course there's risks um for outside cats just like there's risks for cats coming into the shelter and we have to balance that um, with kind of the big picture and are we doing right by that particular cat right and then we want the kittens of appropriate age um, to come in and get neutered and go to the adoption floor and go to a great home those are the ones we want to see so tnr we're all fans of tnr um, i have no idea what i'm working on there and that's an old picture of the old shelter the surgery is awesome um, it's appropriate for ferals and friendlies. 
Um, it prevents the issue that comes up with removal, right? You're going to fix the cat, you're going to vaccinate the cat, you're going to put it back. Um, it gives people a chance to kind of interact with the public to talk about nuisance abatement um, and any feeding concerns they may have and have that conversation. Um, it's healthy for the cats. It's great for the welfare of the cats to have them sterilized and vaccinated. But just again, remember for us to get a population control piece of it, it's a large number of cats that have to be altered and put back. Um, it's still great for the individual cat. I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't try. Um, I'm just saying thinking about the numbers for it to really affect population control is a large, large numbers of cats. Um, but even if we start small and we're getting some in at a time, we're still helping that cat. So um, TNR is here to stay for sure. Great program. So just some data around that, you know, one in 8,000 free roaming cats come into shelters and just the, most of the cats, the status quo is the outside unknown free roaming cats. And you can see the numbers there and just think about the impact on what the shelter would be if all those additional free roaming cats um, are coming in. Again, we've kind of been over this, but this is just kind of walking through the same paper about leaving cats in place. Um, most of the ones that we see outside don't need intervention. Um, you can leave them where they are unless they need immediate attention for some reason. Um, you know, the key is to try and find out as much as you can and assess the situation. Is this a uh, community cat, you know, in their neighborhood um, or is it a cat that really need, does need help? And we can see most of the cats return home on their own found in the neighborhood or found by posting signs. Very few are reclaimed by a call or visit to the shelter. Okay, so all that is to say that when looking at this, again, there's lots of different ways to do it. There's lots of different ways to manage it. No way is perfect, um, but we kind of have to start somewhere. And so the traditional method has been for years and years and decades, everything comes to the shelter. Everything comes to the shelter, all paths lead to the shelter. Um, but when we're looking at this and we've been over capacity several times, we're looking at any means that we can try to divert intake. And that's dogs, cats, others, what, what have you. Um, and then just really thinking about, you know, focusing on the animals that really need to be in the shelter and reserving those resources for them. So we know that we have seasonal breeding and we get surges in intake during kitten season. Um, the unsocialized cats are not um, usually available for adoption, and then it creates an issue with, you know, kind of how to place those cats. Um, we might be taking in community cats, um, taking them away from their families and rehoming them. Um, and we know that um, they don't find, they're not reunited through the shelter means, usually other means, right? So what we see with everything coming in is that we get ill cats, um, lots of stress, crowding, and then all the things that come with that. So that's what we're absolutely trying to avoid um, and just really considering who needs intake and who needs something else. And there's lots of groups that have kind of adopted this, made statements about this. Um, everyone is very much in favor of TNR, but as far as emitting healthy free roaming cats, um, it's just not helping the overall community of this population. Um, you know, this is a strong statement about misuse of time and public funds and should be avoided. Best Friends has a similar statement, you know, community cat programs are there um, to help this population. Trap and remove does not work. Um, we don't want to accept healthy community cats into a shelter program um, unless it's there for spay neuter. 
um, leaving the kittens um, until they're ready to come in. We've been doing that for a while now. It seems to be working well. Um, and then again, you know, return to field or TNR. Um, it's, it's okay for feral or friendlies um, as long as they're okay for surgery. And then they can go back from when they came. There's just another one, cow animals making another statement. And, you know, I know this is um, a difficult thing, like what is best for the cat? Nothing is without risk for sure. Um, but I kind of like this statement at the end, we're saying, you know, shelters that support community cats, we're not putting them out there, but we're supporting the ones that are already there and they're doing okay in their environment. And we're altering them and vaccinating them, um, which ultimately helps their health and welfare. Um, and then slowly and gradually um, reducing the overall population. So this is an old slide of kind of an algorithm of, if you see this, you know, here's where you go. Um, you know, this is, even has the old logos on it and whatnot. But the idea is that our staff will be asking open-ended questions to get the right information. You know, what is the age of the kitten? Where are we located? And why do we think that this is a dangerous um, spot? You know, asking for photos, you know, kind of going through all the next steps to figure out where they can, you know, best direct um, this cat. So these are the queen and kitten pathways that we talked about back three years ago um, that talks about, you know, the key, you know, what you're looking for to know, you know, if the queen is um, there, if they're truly abandoned kittens. Um, we keep a log of all these, you know, that are out in the field and kind of waiting for kittens to age up to come in. Um, and we share that with the community cat program. So we're kind of expecting about what time they might be coming in for services. Um, but these are questions that people ask on, you know, when they get a phone call, when have you seen the queen? What are the kittens trying to get at the age of the kittens? Are the kittens moving? Are their eyes open? Um, what's the environment like? Can you send me a photo? Um, or is this a nuisance call? And this is more of a public education thing about how to coexist with cats and doing some mitigation um, with that person. And then adult cats, these are copied and pasted from the talking points that we give to our front desk, um, you know, trying to be more proactive, I think is kind of, you know, always been the thought that um, animal control officers don't pick up healthy unowned cats. Um, they certainly will bring them in if they're injured or they have a complaint of some reason, but this is, you know, kind of more happening over the counter as well. Talking to the public more, doing some fact finding before they come in. Um, are they not, not in distress? Are they, you know, healthy and friendly? Um, are they just an indoor, outdoor owned cat? You know, kind of getting, uh, asking some more questions before saying, yes, we want to have all the cats come in, right? More questions, you know, is there any sign of ownership? Um, does the cat have a tipped ear? Is the cat looking like it's in any way um, in pain, vocalizing, or looks um, unthrifty? Or again, is it a nuisance issue? RP stands for a reporting party. Did they indicate it's a nuisance cat? And, you know, then that's a conversation that community cat needs to have with them um, about how to mitigate some of that. So the idea is to have a, a systematic approach to assessing all of these cases before coming into the shelter to decide kind of where to send that cat. Right. It could mean, yes, you need to come to the shelter. It could mean, let me give you the number for CCP. Um, it could mean you know, a variety of, of, of things, depending on why the cat might be coming in. Um, we want to try and move um, as much as we can to an appointment-based system, understanding 
that you know emergencies happen and it's not always necessarily convenient but if we can that allows the front staff to have time to have that conversation um, and kind of work through what is the best course of action here and better communication right and again we want to provide the right care at the right place at the right time to the best outcome um, for each individual while we're still managing um you know kind of that overall population in our shelter trying to give everybody the best care that they can have so next steps things that we're kind of working on um, we would like to have the home to home program up on our website um, for folks that feel that they need to surrender or rehome their animal it's just a program to kind of help connect those people connect the doctors with people that continue to rehome their animal it all happens outside of the shelter we just kind of have a an algorithm there to support it. Um, we're gonna up, continue to update the resource materials. We've updated the information on the website several times. We'll continue to work on these scripts um, for the front desk. Um, I think I've made the point we're not a, a revenue generating department um, for the city. So the front desk um, is empowered to waive fees when appropriate. Um, we have a guardian assistance program for anybody that is in a, another kind of support program. Um, their fees are waived, um, at least for the first times that we interact with them. We want to remove all the barriers we can to people getting their animals back. You know, money is not what we're in this for. You know, we want to, as long as there's not a reason that the animal should go back to their person, fees shouldn't be the reason that they're not reunited with their family. Um, moving more towards appointment-based admissions as much as we can, so we have the time to kind of work through that with folks before they're coming in, doing some self-scheduling. Um, so that it's really easy. You don't have to have a phone call. If you have a call, the, you know, you call the front desk and push one and push two. It takes forever to get to where you want, right? So if you can go on the website and make your own schedule for, I need to renew a license or I would like to surrender my dog, it will take you through those questions and hopefully get you to the right place and give you the right information along the way, right? Um, we're working on adjusting the hold periods. You know, we are kind of beholden to some of the ordinances, um, local ordinances, which are a bit more strict um, than what's expected at the state level. So we're trying to reconcile that so we can move animals through as quickly as possible. Um, we're going to rewrite the mission statement. And I agree with the comments previously is that it doesn't fit. Um, it doesn't fit with what our current mission statement was written decades ago and doesn't fit with the modern sheltering world um, and what we hope to accomplish. So we realize that and um, it's time for some rewrites to reflect best practices. And then um, talking, um, being more transparent and providing more information on metrics other than live release rate um, to measure kind of how things are working at the shelter. So we talked about the limitations of live release rate and what that means. Um, but also looking at some of these other things like numbers of animals that are coming in, um, things of that nature um, that might be more helpful to kind of put that in context. Always a work in progress. So this is just a list of a lot of the resources. Um, I really recommend the um, Maddie's Million Pet Challenge, the four rights um, is super helpful if you really want to know more about sheltering. Um, there's four different series there. Um, these are just links to the statements that I showed and some other kind of like handouts, talking points, things like that. So thank you for staying awake <laughs> through the whole thing. That was a lot of information. Um, 
I'd be happy to take whatever questions the commissioners have. Um, let me get all of your faces back up here. There we go. I can't raise my hand. Um, oh, I'm not sure anybody's ready for me. Okay. Uh, you want sure. Commissioner um, Anhorn. Yeah, I'm sorry. My, my raise the hand button doesn't work, but I've got a few things I wanted to bring up. The, the 1st 1 is an ongoing month by month question that I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but. Um, you're still understaffed. I mean, I worked in the poorest place that did animal control in the state. We covered, you know, 5,000 square miles. You guys cover 50 square miles. Um, and we had the same number of officers um, with twice the pot or with half the population. You have two doctors and one technician, and we've been screaming about this for months. Is the city any closer to actually making your medical office a functional medical office? And then I'll get on, on to my other concerns. All right. Um, in response to that question, there has been um, no progress as far as the medical piece goes. I mean, I do have technically one and a half technicians instead of just one. Um, but you're right, doctor, it's a mismatch um, ratio there. We should have more support staff than we do doctors, that's for sure. Um, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but I mean, there, it's not like we have open positions that we want to fill. We are filled. The positions we have are filled. That is it. That is the sum total of positions in the vet department. Um, as you know, I've reported on this several times. I, I meant to check up on the hiring situation again, but I think there's probably four to six ACO vacancies that still haven't been filled. Um, there's still a position at the front desk that's still open. Um, we still have some temps in the ACA division that are kind of waiting for that permanent position to open up um, so they can kind of reapply for their job and become a permanent employee. Um, and they're limited on hours. You know, when they're the temp, they can only work over, I don't remember what it is. It's basically equivalent of like 20 hours a week, but it's cumulative. So they may work a little bit more one week and a little less, but as long as it evens out at the end of the year, then HR is fine with that. So um, it is a real challenge. Um, and I've been there, it'll be eight years in January, and it's been something I've been saying for the last eight years. And the, you know, the voice I hear back is you're not getting any new positions added. So, you know, sometimes we do have open positions that need to be filled. Um, but as far as the medical side of things, that, that's what we've got. And I wish I could tell my staff that that was changing. Um, but the reality is it is not. I think, you know, part of the issue is when we do suffer from some burnout and we're all kind of wearing different hats. Um, you know, I may be on the floor one day, I may be writing this presentation next day. And oh, by the way, we have high path avian influenza that we need an SLP for and all the things change with the birds coming in. So, you know, there's always something going on um, that's not directly veterinary medicine related to me. So um, luckily I have super awesome staff um, that works really hard. Um, and I, you know, I wish I could um, do more for them, more to support them in that uh, in that way. But uh, my hands are kind of tied. 
again, I'm just trying to point that out because I appreciate I mean, it. I really do. In Tulare County, which I would call the poorest, well, maybe along with maybe Kern County in the state. I mean, we have the same number of officers covering literally 10 times the area that you are. And at two in the morning, if they have a drunk driver that has a, a dog in their car, they have an animal control officer that will come out. And San Francisco, I believe you turn off your phones at 11. Um, and that's technically it's midnight. <laughs> okay, sorry. My and then bad. starts at 6 a.m. I know this because I am also on call for our officers until that hour. So I know this because I used to have to go out at four in the morning to yeah. pick up those dogs from drunk drivers before I was a veterinarian. And when I come to San Francisco and it's like, no, that's not an option. It's like, what are we doing wrong in terms of fi financing our ACOs in this city? So that's that's my first sort of point. Um, my next one would be that, you know, we have a, a lot of good statistics you brought up, but they're national numbers and they really don't apply to SF. And I mean, the gals over at Community Cats, they're they're doing their best, but they don't really, in my experience, have numbers that are that are really conclusive in terms of telling us where we're at in the number of strays and what we're dealing with in, in SF. So I think we have kind of a black hole of of um, you know statistics going on here and um i know everybody at your office is doing the best that they can but i don't think we have viable numbers that we can really look at in, in terms of my you know review of what they have to offer and then lastly um you know it, at least in the last few weeks um my experience with dealing with feral cats i mean i've got a litter at my office that nobody else would take on. I'm spaying a mother next week and releasing her back into the community that, you know, nobody else could get help with. I have a guy on the phone who got a cat chewed up by his next door neighbor's dog night before last, and he's been calling trying to get help. And um, I'm going to go do it myself. Um, I think that you know, if we at least had the, the number of animal control officers that could go out and assess these cases when, when we say, okay, we need to leave them in the field um, and let them grow up a little bit more and let them be in the wild a little bit more, have somebody that's not unexperienced evaluating that situation. And I know you don't have that staff to do that, but we need that staff to do that if this is going to be our protocol. And I'm, I'm going to drop the mic there. I'm sorry. What I'm... <laughs> no, I don't disagree with you, um, doctor, that, um, you know, that's kind of getting towards, you know, asking more questions because, you know, when you're, you're not usually dealing with a, a cat expert, you know, when you're talking on the phone, you're not dealing with someone in animal welfare that can give you the information that you need to have um, in most circumstances. So, you know, they started asking for more photos, um, trying to ask more open-ended questions. Um, sometimes they will go out. I mean, if it sounds like there's really a situation there, they will go out and assess the situation and, you know, kind of make a decision on scene 
um, with their own eyes on it of, you know, whether to come in, stay, what do they need? Do we need to support them? Do they need kitten kits? You know, whatever it is. Um, and that uh, they would all love to do that. Um, but you're right. There's only so many hours in the day and only so many officers to go out to the call. Um, I also don't think you're wrong about community cat statistics. Um, you know, to be honest, it's not our program. It's never been our program. Um, and so I, I can't speak to, um, you know, kind of what, you know, kind of what they're working on or what trends are they seeing or how many animals have they served. Um, I know it's a chronic problem to keep those positions staffed over there as well. I just had another key person leave a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, there's just a lot I don't know um, as well as far as what Community Cat is doing. Um, but they, you know, they are committed to keeping that program going um, to provide TNR for the Community Cats. You know, they have, if we have something come through us first that really should go to them, you know, we usually can transfer it and kind of, um, get them to prioritize those cases that just need to come in for services and then be back out. It's the same problem though, as you mentioned before, I mean, it's not, you know, the officers can't be taking cats back out to release, but that's what community cats is for. That's what the program is for. Um, so we try to continue to work closely with them. It's just, you know, there's a lot of questions um, that I can't answer on their behalf um, that really need to be directed that way. And that's kind of a non-answer, but that's the best. I can do it. It's okay. Well. Thank you for the best you can. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Van Horn, for your question, also for your insight. Um, I have a couple questions as well. Um, and thank you, Dr. O'Neill, for the presentation. Um, but before I go into my questions, I did want to follow up on one that from Dr. Van Horn concerning the ACOs. Um, now, I understand some of the, the staffing issues are a matter of budget, but also, too, it just seems like some positions are open. My understanding is that the ACO positions are budgeted, but they're they're not filled. And it seems like not too long ago, well, not too long ago in, in commission time, but I mean, it was probably about a year ago or a year and a half ago, it sounded like there were um, positions that were filled, but in the process of, of the applicants being trained, what, whatever happened or how, how come we don't have those, how come those positions aren't filled? That's what I'm asking or wondering. Yeah, about. I mean, we did have ones. new um, folks come on and um, finish their training. We just had, um, oh, recently within the last month or so, um, two or three officers that got their badges, you know, kind of finished with their training program and um, on their own there. I think the issue is the applicant pool is very challenging um, for this job and um, the, the training is lengthy. Um, and involved as well. I think there were some good candidates um, kind of early on in the process and then um, ended up kind of dropping out, kind of taking their name out of the out of the ring for a variety of reasons. Other opportunities came up. I mean, you know, as you're aware, the hiring process moves at a glacial pace with the city. So, you know, it's not uncommon, you know, you apply for a job and then you don't hear anything for six months and then by then you've moved on, right? Which makes complete and total sense. So, um, you know, always the applications that come in for even animal care attendants um, or ACOs, you know, the, the folks looking at those look to see, you know, could this person's experience actually fit in another area of the shelter. So they're looking like, you know, who applied for an animal care attendant job that really maybe could suit for an ACO. Maybe we 
you know, kind of recruit them. So they're always looking for that. I think the, the problem with those positions is the applicant pool there, you know, the, the requirements um, for the hours that they need experience wise is pretty high. Um, so it's not unusual that we have trouble with people meeting those requirements. So I know, and, you know, trying kind of every iteration to help them with that. Um, so we've had sometimes people start part-time even at the front desk to get those hours of experience in. And then once they kind of tick that box, you know, get back in the pool for the, the job they originally applied for. It's, it's really quite challenging, the hiring. And, you know, a lot of it is certainly out of my control and above my pay grade, but um, it's incredibly frustrating um, for the, the admin side of things to get things moving. Yeah, so you know, there's a lot of creative approaches that have been tried to kind of um, address this solution. Um, I don't, I don't have an answer for um, for that, but that that's generally my understanding is that the applicant pool is small, um, and you know, it takes a while and people move on. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm gonna so add to that why the applicant pool is small. Um, ACOs require essentially the same amount of training that a sheriff's deputy does, but they're going to get paid half as much. Yeah. And they they really have to be, you know, dedicated to their job and they have to want to do this. And then you have to want them to come to a place like San Francisco where they won't be able to afford to pay their rent. Yeah. Um, so it's really difficult to find the people that are qualified to do this. Yes, job. that's, um, that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 I agree with everything you're saying. I, there's nothing. I, I agree with every point that you're making. Um, it's, it's hard to find qualified people. A lot of people that are applying are just, you know, kind of way underqualified, don't have the experience or, you know, they come on a ride along and they figure out it's not for them because you're right. You know, as I pointed out at the start of this, animal welfare work is not easy. Um, it takes a lot of personal sacrifice. It's not the, the best pay. <laughs> if you're an ACO, it's not the best hours. Um, you, you really have to have a passion for the work to want to, um, to, want to do it. And um, our officers are amazing in that way. Um, boy, they would bend over backwards for any animal. Um, but yeah, that's not every person. Um, so I, I think it's a real challenge. It's the same in veterinary medicine, uh, as you know. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Um, concerning the presentation, again, thank you so much. But just like our presentation uh, last month, there there was there's a lot of information there. Um, are, will you be able to provide the presentation to us to put up on our website? Okay, yes. great. If you can, yes, okay, if you could forward it to me at some point, that would be super because yep. I know it would definitely Absolutely. be very helpful. I was still kind of tweaking some things um, oh, <laughs> until the last understand. minute, so that's why I didn't yeah. send it ahead. Okay, great. No, that's that's totally understandable. Um, then I guess I, I have other questions, but I guess the only one that I really want to ask now, because I know where, you know, there's other commissioners that also have questions too. Um, concerning the, the admissions policy, I know um, with the intake policies and talking point slide, you kind of covered it, but a large part of, of our questions and uh, comments have come regarding the admissions policy and, and what exactly is it from the standpoint of, of CATS? Um, you know, as we remember from last month and as we've seen like on social media, there, there's a lot of stories of CATS that um, are found that are, that are in 
situations in which you know are are considered dangerous um an example is is a cat that was you know i guess found on um, in the in the tenderloin on a pretty busy street and looked pretty scared as far as you know where to go and um you know and basically was there and was need of assistance uh, it sounds like there wasn't any assistance to be found at um, acc when when they were contacted um if i remember correctly i could be you know, a little bit, I could be misunderstanding it or getting that confused with one other situation, but it seems like that does come up frequently and that's the most recent complaints. Um, so my question is, um, you know, and a lot of this has to do with, with the way that um, people are responding when, when, when they're being called, as well as, you know, staff are responding when they're being called, as well as when, when animals are being brought in. Um, I also hear too, that there's also situations, and we talked about this as well, um, where um, people are bringing in cats, asking if they could be read or scanned for a micro for a micro chip, and being told that no, that that's not something that the ACC does. And um, there's also um, so I guess th those are my questions. Just if we can kind of get your thoughts on that, and the fact that like cats aren't being taken in taken in in some situations, how does that um, how, how does that go along with the open admissions policy at ACC? Right. Well, there's a lot of questions all at once, so I will try to remember all of them. Um, I mean, I I do not know how the conversations go with the front desk. I, I just have to be honest. I'm not there to hear those conversations. I'm not there to know if it's very one-sided. I'm not there to know if the appropriate questions are being asked or what the tone is. Um, I, I don't disagree that a lot of the complaints have to do with the communication. Um, you know, the part that I have been involved with is just trying to, um, rework the website, put as much information on there as possible. So that it's easy for someone to say, I found a cat and then, you know, kind of go through those steps or I lost the cat and we're going to go through those steps, you know, trying to kind of make that easier to navigate and having the information as available as possible. Um, I've had this conversation with Virginia several times because I, I hear those same concerns um, and it seems like it's more of a communication um, issue um, with callers coming in. And we want people to call because the idea is right to triage, you know, where where can I direct this person for the best outcome for the cat? Um, so I've talked to her about that, about, you know, how can we monitor the calls? You know, can we have some kind of follow-up? Um, do we know that everybody's kind of following the script in the same way? Um, you know, it sounds like some of the issues are you may call and get in this information one day, and then you may talk to a different service rep and it changes. And I agree that's not appropriate. Um, it's not something that I have control over. I, I hear it and I recognize it and I have brought it up um, with Virginia on several occasions. And I think she's still kind of thinking about how to address that. But consistency obviously is key. Uh, making sure that information is out there and accessible um, and that everyone's getting the same information at the same time. Um, it is a case-by-case -case basis, so it kind of depends on, you know, what information is coming in and how that um, person on the, the staff person on the phone is kind of processing that um, and then communicating back, you know, here's what the next steps and just being clear about here's what's going to happen when the cat comes to the shelter. As far as microchips go, I mean, I do hear several pages during the day. Can we have an animal care attendant come to the front to scan an animal for a chip? So if the animal is physically there, I, I you know, again, I, I, 
It's hard for me to address in specific instances when I just don't have firsthand knowledge, but I can say in a general sense that if an animal is standing in the lobby, it's going to get scanned for a chip. Um, 100%. Um, I mean, that that's standard practice with, you know, kind of, even if they're not being impounded at that point, if they are impounded, they're 100% going to get scanned for a chip, whether they're coming from the field or they're coming across the counter um, or they're in the field. You know, the officers have a scanner on them um, or they should in their vans where they can do that in the field um, and hopefully facilitate a return home without ever having to step into the van. Right. That's the ideal world. Um, so microchip scanning, I'm not sure how to respond to that because I think that's a very easy thing to do if the animal is physically there. It's not an issue. Um, your other questions, I mean, the inconsistency with communication, I recognize that that is a problem. Um, and hopefully that will be addressed. Um, information on the website is hopefully um, easier to navigate and a little bit more comprehensive. Um, you know, just pulling those talking points are exactly what is given to all the front desk folks as a script of here are the questions you need to ask. And if you get this kind of response is what you get. Um, we're still taking in plenty of cats. I mean, you have seen that the numbers really haven't dropped dramatically. I don't expect that this is going to result in a huge drop necessarily in intake. What we're trying to look at across all species um, of animals, anything that's coming in, you know, is the shelter the best place for that animal? And can we um, manage whatever their issue is outside of the shelter so that they don't have to come in? If they need to come in, then they need to come in. Um, and again, it, it will be a bit subjective sometimes as far as what is a dangerous area um, and, and I get that. I understand that, you know, an outside cat, there are risks in the world. Um, I understand that. Um, but the reality is that a lot of cats are in and out. Um, and despite us encouraging people to keep their cats in, that continues to happen. And certainly we have a fairly significant community cat, outside cat, free roaming cats. Um, and we're trying to do the best we can by them. And what we've seen is that, you know, in many cases, not all cases, um, they might be better served going through community cat program um, rather than coming into the shelter. So, you know, that's a starting point. It will take time. Um, you know, kind of being more proactive is new for the front desk. I think the officers are kind of used to that. They 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 don't really pick up healthy um, healthy stray cats um, unless there's a reason. Um, and then again, they're on scene, they can assess that a little bit better and then they can make a, a judgment call, maybe a little bit better than um, a shelter service rep that's on the phone. Um, so hopefully that answers some of your questions. It's, it, like you say, it's hard for me. I, I'm not involved in each individual instance. Um, so it's hard for me to kind of make a judgment on whether that was necessarily right or wrong. Um, but the idea is, you know, recognizing that we need to be consistent in the messaging it will take some practice it will take some time to kind of um work through all the the issues here um and that's the reason that we're having this conversation yeah exactly does that okay. answer your question i know there were several parts i'm not sure if i hit them all but but it, it gave me some some insight and i i think that what it is a lot of it is the fact that um that you know that that there's some training issues uh, there's possibly, you know, some some parts of the admissions policy that you know we'll look further into as far as you know we'll 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 
you know, that probably need to be, you know, looked at. But again, you know, uh, it's, you know, there's probably more information that needs to be, uh, that I need to know before I can, you know, really speak to that. But, you know, definitely at least the thought that, you know, that there is an ability to scan microchips, for example, and the fact that, that if an animal is in danger, you know, they will be assisted that, you know, that at least that what we're hearing that that's, you know, a strong possibility and that is something that, that should and will be done, you know, that that's something. So, so I, I appreciate think, your responses. Yeah, there was yeah. a question um, kind of offline about, you know, stray cats coming in, which is what this kind of category of cat is. Um, and I would say, although I don't have a, a number to give you, I would say the vast majority of ones that come in um, over the counter are healthy cats. Um, I know this just anecdotally because, you know, if there's anything that comes across the counter that's sick or injured or needs immediate attention, I get a page, the whole shelter, code two cat or a sick or injured cat needs to go to the vet room. Everyone is aware um, that there's a need there and they come straight to the vet room. And that doesn't happen often. Um, the more often path is, you know, the cat is impounded. There's nothing emergent, you know, if there's a minor medical issue that staff feels like we should look at, they use our program to kind of send me a message to put on my list of like, you know, priority exam, but it's not an emergency will come to us. All right, staff knows how to do that. Um, so I would say the majority coming in over the counter are healthy cats or have very, very minor issues. And we kind of do get their exams done in our normal day to day. Um, the ones that come from the field are almost always sick or injured. Um, and that just makes sense, right? You've got an officer out there with eyes on it. They've been called for a reason. You know, they're going to make an assessment and nine times out of 10, that cat's going to come in. Um, I think it's harder with the over the counter um, and having that phone conversation, really trying to get at um, what the issue is. And, and a lot of times it will come down to a, a judgment call. I and mean, we need that to be consistent, as consistent as possible. Um, I saw some article, one of my, um, colleagues sent me that there's a microchip scanner. I don't know where in the world this is that's like solar powered in this community so that any Joe Q public can walk up and grab the scanner out of this yeah. little thing and scan animals. It's pretty slick. Um, so yeah, that would be a great thing to have as well. But I, I would I would find it hard to believe that an animal physically in the shelter wouldn't be scanned. That's an easy thing to do. Yeah, and I'm sure, yeah, the ones that I've heard about probably within the shelter, it's it's more a question of the ones before they're in the shelter, right. the ones that are found. Right. Okay. Right. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I'd like to open it up to any of the commissioners who might have questions um, before we open up for public comment. Um, are there any questions from any commissioners? I don't see any physical hands and I don't see any hands on my desktop. Okay, uh, seeing no questions, I guess we'll open up for public comment. Um, let me see how many we have in the queue. Okay, uh, before I start taking calls, I do want to remind people again um, that you do have two minutes to, to make your comments. Um, and also, I want to ask um, that. Okay, but also if I just going back a little bit, please hit star three on your phone right now to make a comment to be put in the speaker queue, okay? Just a reminder as well that it may take some time. I'll let you know in a minute how many calls we have uh, to be aware. 
um, you will get a prompt when you are when is your turn to speak, followed by me on the line saying that your two minutes have begun. Please stick to your two minutes. As I mentioned, we will be for time reasons for timing purposes. We will mute you after two minutes have been reached. Um, and again, just as a reminder too, if you have already heard, if you already pressed star three and you heard the prompt in which your hand has been raised, please do not hit star three again. What that'll do is that'll lower your hand and I will not see that you are in the queue to make a comment. Um, hitting star three again will not speed you up in the line or to anything else or bring you to the attention of anyone any sooner. So please, I think thinking about it, I think that might be worth, we had the issue beforehand is people probably hitting start three repeatedly and as a result, um, lowering their hand when they were told to be within the queue. So anyways, looking right now at comments, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, looks like we have about 10 comments right now. Okay, so I'm saying that so people can kind of gauge the time involved as far as what the wait time will be, okay? So anyways, just a second, please, and I will start other comments. Okay, we're taking our first caller. Okay, speaker, your two minutes are beginning now. Hi, this is Maria Conlon. Can you hear me? Yes? Yes, we can. Thank you, Maria. Great. Great. Thanks. Thank you for the presentation. Um, I think you all remember me. We presented, I presented with Alina last month. Anyways, I just wanted to say um, that when I volunteered at the shelter as, as an orange volunteer, I helped people look for their lost cats all the time in the shelter. And I even helped somebody find their cat once that I remember because I saw the cat in the shelter. They posted the cat on Paboose and I helped um, reconnect that person with their cat. So I just want to say people, although statistically it might not look like people are finding their cats, they do find their cats in the shelter sometimes. But I really want to address that, you know, because of this new policy and this change, vulnerable cats and kittens are really being left outside to die. And on September 29th, we got a call. Um, one of uh, one of the other cat community volunteers got a call that there was a cat kitten that was loose on Market Street in the Civic Center area. And she said it was just about the time early in the morning, ready to go to work or whatever. And she recommended that the Good Samaritan that found the kitten call Animal Care and Control and have them come pick up with the kitten because the kitten had been running in traffic. I mean, everybody knows probably Civic Center in San Francisco is a horrible area. You wouldn't want any cat loose there. And um, then the kitten ran into abandoned storefront. So she calls Animal Care and Control and they said they would not come pick up the kitten to leave the kitten where it was. So I went down to pick up the kitten and found out that the kitten was not neutered. He was not microchip. So what home could he have possibly belonged to? I mean, eventually they said they wouldn't come up to get, to get the kitten unless the kitten was injured, but surely the kitten would have gotten hit by a car, probably even killed. So why are these kinds of kittens that are, or cats that are needy being turned away? I mean, why are any friendly cats being left out on the street? And again, this cat kitten is unneutered. So now if he was going to survive, he would continue to procreate. So I just really want to see animal care and control reverse this policy and start to bring cat and cats and kittens in, the homeless cats and kittens that were always brought in before. I mean, how much more is it going to be? How many cats are out there really? You know, Alina, like in the presentation we did last month, she brought 
50 cats or 60 cats to ACC. I mean, in the whole scheme of that 2,000 plus cats, how many cats is that for them to help? So that's all. I just want to continue to push for that policy reversal. So thank you. Thank you for your comments. Okay, we're going on to the next speaker. I'm unmuting you. Okay. okay, you can make your comment. Your two minutes begin now. Hello, uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, my name is Evelyn and I'm a resident in the Bayview. I take care of four or five feral cats. Um, I'm concerned because of this, this policy. It doesn't really distinguish between the lost cats, abandoned cats, and feral cats. And I, I do believe that a friendly cat that is um, most likely went to the home and is now lost or abandoned does need to go to be able to go to animal care and control and be cared for, even if it is a healthy cat. Uh, I don't think that distinction distinction only between uh, taking a healthy cat or a sick cat is, is the correct one to stick with. Um, I can tell um, sometimes a cat will try to join my little backyard group, and it's a very friendly cat, comes around for a week or more, but I can tell that it really deserves a home, not not to join my feral colony. And yet I won't have any option to have that cat get a more permanent loving home if animal care control doesn't take healthy, free-roaming cats that need to be cared for, um, much less take the sick ones or the injured ones. And I would also say that um, I agree that most lost cats probably do return home or are found close by, but um, that doesn't mean that some of them won't be recovered through animal care and control. And on the next door social media site, every time someone posts a lost cat uh, notice, someone always gives the advice to go to animal care and control. This, this advice always comes up. So I really urge you to try to reconsider this policy and, and take in the kittens and the cats that need to be uh, placed in a permanent home. Thank you. Okay, thank you for your comments. Okay, I'm going to the next caller. Okay, I'm gonna mute you. Okay, your two minutes have started. You can give your comment. Yeah, hi. Um, I, I'm really appalled at what's going on in ACC. I mean, after an hour of listening to a lot of rationale and quote-unquote science, what I what I really get is that ACC is just over, totally uh, under unsafe and over capacity. And beautiful than telling people that we're changing our policy, we're we're changing our mission statement. And this is new science that you just can't handle what you have. You just don't have the resources. You know, when that kind of message gets out. And you're that's much more of a real partnership with the community. Let us know that, hey, we're overwhelmed. What we need is support. What we need is 
better funding from the city. So I think that's the issue that needs to be clear with people instead of you know, having rude staff just say, hey, send them back out in the streets. You know, I'm a taxpayer. You know, my money supports the city. You obviously are not for so our tax dollars support you. Well, we can. We partner with you. But right now, there's no partnership. That's my comment. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much for sharing your comments. Okay, I'm going to. Unmute the next caller. Hi, can you okay, hear me? Two hi, minutes. Can you hear me? Yes, your two minutes are beginning now. Thank you. Okay, hi, this is Lana oh, Basil. I'm the director of Give Me Shelter Cat Rescue. Um, I have more bullet points um, than, uh, than, you know, uh, a comment. Um, but just to address something in the presentation about uh, the front desk and the questions that they asked and, you know, their uh, script, they are not adhering to that. There's a huge disconnect with the messaging from your front desk staff to the public. I feel complaints continually through email and voicemail about the community's interaction with the front desk. So, so that definitely needs to be addressed. I also realize that you consider yourself a pass-through shelter. I can appreciate that by the same token. Virginia continually boasts about the, um, the sheer uh, numbers of rescues that they have, you know, developed relationships with over the past years. I suggest that you utilize those rescues and you should be able to be more of an open admission uh, shelter based on the fact that you have these relationships with so many rescues. So that, that would eliminate these tame, um, un, you know, unhoused um, cats and kittens on the street being able to at least get to safety. Number three, the other uh, sort of something that came up in the presentation was this was going to be posted on um, the, uh, the information was going to be posted on the ACC website. Understand there are a lot of seniors and non-English and or second, um, second language is English, people that do not have internet access. So they need to be briefed as well as regards uh, what the messaging is. The other question I had actually was a rehoming outside the shelter comment that was made during the presentation. And I don't understand that algorithm or how that's going to work, but that's something that, um, you know, that's an expectation of the, of the public again, you know, to take to take a service that in the past ACC has provided that is no longer available. So that's that's a concern. So the other, the last comment I'm going to make in this is um, the kitten that was uh, on Facebook with the animal control officer who removed this pain kitten from a pipe. Promptly, it was the, all the accolades in the back, uh, and you know, the back uh, slapping and saying, "Hey, great job, great job." Promptly picked up the same kitten and put it back in the same environment. What benefit does does that kitten derive? from being left in the same dangerous situation and not being taken to the shelter? And what benefit to the community was that unaltered as well? You know, it, this is gonna come back, I think, this is my you know, estimation is that down the road, there's gonna be a population explosion amongst um, tame cats and now they're gonna be feral. And you're gonna have, I don't know if anybody has ever, 
you know, address this potential backlash of these unaltered animals that are out there that, not, that are not going through the system. So those are my comments. This is regressive policy. I don't care if best friends, ASPCA and everybody else embraces it. Um, you know, they've been under scrutiny uh, over the years as well. So, Two minutes, you know, sir. just to say that, Close. okay. Right. All right, thanks. Okay, okay. Thank you so much for your comment, okay? Mona. Okay, going on to the next caller. You can make your comment. Your two minutes are beginning now. This is Elva Granite, a former cat behavior volunteer at ACC. According to her current LinkedIn listing, Virginia Donahue's ownership of her family's pet camp business ended in 2015 when she became executive director of ACC. She's still listed as an owner on the pet camp website, and she has a link to pet camp on LinkedIn. August 18, 2021, Virginia put out a video of the pet cap website where she is interviewed by her operations manager about stray animals. Virginia identified herself as the director of ACC while hiding the fact that she is the owner of the business that is interviewing her. This misleadingly implies to the public that pet camp has ACC's personal blessing while hiding the fact they are owned by the director of ACC. In the interview, Virginia states, we don't pick up any stray cats unless they are injured or in distress. A cat wanders the neighborhood, knows where it is, and isn't actually lost, so we don't do it anymore. Examples of ACC and cats, February 14th, they refuse to scan or house a scruffy cat found in a, at a dangerous intersection. July 12th, ACC Facebook talks about the officer who rescues a friendly under-neutered cat from a pipe and then drops him back over the fence because of current practices. September 29, ACC refuses to pick up an unfixed male kitten who runs across busy Market Street. GMS has to step in, give me shelter. For dogs, Virginia says you just bring them here and you're good. Somebody who's lost their dog is frantic. They're calling here. They're looking everywhere. What about cat people? As she leverages her position as head of ACC to benefit her private business, Virginia Donahue contradicts Mayor London Breed's stated purpose for funding ACC found in the March 8, 2021 news release. The shelter is a place to go to take a found pet or to search for a lost pet. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Going on to the next caller. Your two minutes begin now. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Deborah Sherwood, uh, and I think my comment is really going to reflect a theme that was brought up not only by commissioners, but by other uh, public um, comment tonight. Um, I'm the owner of an indoor-outdoor cat that doesn't wear a collar, but he is chipped. Um, so I can understand the issue of potentially owned cats um, being brought in. But, you know, based on comments in the hearing last month, there is some really poor customer service at ACC. I mean, people are being just completely dismissed. Um, there's rude and unhelpful experiences when contacting the ACC. And I really question how well front desk staff are being trained to assess whether the cat being brought in um, is an owned cat or is a healthy stray or a feral. And I, I heard in the presentation tonight that there are plans to better train people, to have a systematic process, to have a script. Um, and I really hope that 
whoever is in charge of that takes that very seriously because you have to be able to get in the front door. And if you're turned away, I mean, that could be a matter of life and death for that cat. So I would hope that the commission would require or whatever you do, strongly recommend that the ACC implement uh, an effective training program for frontline staff immediately. I also just wanted to comment about the idea of having an appointment-based system. Um, I really question whether that's just going to create sort of another layer of bureaucracy that the public has to get through in order to get a question answered or if there's an immediate need. Um, so I don't know if that's really more just to help staff manage their stress um, and the volume or if it's really something that's going to be helpful for the cats. So that's those are my comments. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deborah, for, for your comments. Okay, we're going on to our next caller. Okay, your two minutes begin now. Hi there, uh, this is Andrea Montoya calling. Um, I am the founder and director of Andrea's Dream Rescue, who is a co-rescue here in San Francisco, along with uh, Give Me Shelter and the very few, if not one or two or three of us that support um, the San Francisco area. And I just, um, I really don't have any scripts written out. Um, I think there's a few points that I like to point out. Just, you know, really in the last couple of years um, of what, you know, this um, system and how animal care and control has just completely taken way, way, way too many steps backwards rather than forward. Um, first off, I like to say, you know, with um, agreeing with Lana, the communication and what is being done at the front counters of um, animal care and control when our our citizens are coming in there trying to get direction of what to do with the cats that they feel is um, you know at risk or in a dangerous situation and the way that these people are being approached by your front desk and being intimidated a lot of times um, same thing i get a lot of emails and information from a lot of people who reach out to me after saying they've been um, turned away and rejected and almost intimidated by the staff there um, secondly, you know, we have always been a city that has set, you know, standards across the country. You remember Animal Planet, all of the stuff that used to be done and how we were kind of this, this uh, shelter that set, you know, standards and bars across the country. And now, you know, I, I hear from people across the country about what they see and what they have now heard about San Francisco, and it's almost a joke. Um, we're not any better than anywhere else right now. Um, we're basically, you know, kind of at the same level, which is sad, you know? It's, it's, it's sad because this, this city has always been a city that has set standards across the country. And thirdly, um, I, I feel, you know, with a lot of the Facebook posts and a lot of the posts with what our offices are doing, ATOs, you know, they're, they're saving snakes, they're saving coyotes, they're saving, you know, birds, they're saving raccoons, but what about the cats? You know, nothing, nothing is but get the cat, let it go. You know, they're not wildlife. They're pets. They're, they're animals that can be taken in, bayed, neutered, population control, and also adopted out and find homes. So, you know, unfortunately, the small rescues like us have to bear the weight and the finances because our city shelter who gets a lot of money and funding cannot do their job. You know, it, it's becoming a very frustrating thing for the, those of us that are the small rescues in this area. 
And that's basically all I have to say. Thank you, Andrea, for your comments. Okay, we're going on to the next caller. Okay, you have two minutes to make your comments. Hi, I just wanted to really um, give appreciation to those small rescues and, and um, adoption um, agencies that give me shelter and the Andrea Dreams that, that called in tonight, that they're doing a, an incredible job and without the resources, you know, that our city has um, put into the ACC. Um, I know a trapper who, um, who actually works as a, you know, as a delivery person to raise money to get cats fixed because she can't get them fixed through the system that we have here. Um, I wanted to um, suggest that, you know, if there's a capacity issue at the shelter that, that, um, that ACC uses the community partners more in, 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 in getting cats outside of the shelter and um, along the same lines, um, using fosters more. I also know someone who has signed up to be a foster and still does not have a cat after several months. So I'm curious about how fosters are utilized and if they're being utilized to the best um, that they can be. But mostly I'm, I'm really concerned about leaving cats outside that are unfixed. Um, we have cats, you know, that if they're kittens, the, the rule was to leave them outside with the, with the queens. For a certain amount of time, well, the kittens can wander off too, and um, they're pregnant within six months, and they can have a litter and a half a year. So this is babies having babies, you know, and exponential growth in the number of feral cats, unfixed cats. So that's a real concern, and I want to see, you know, what ACNC can do to help with that situation instead of turning the cats away. Try to get them neutered. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments. Okay, we're going to our next caller. And just so people are aware, we have about five more calls. Okay, I'm unmuting this person. Okay, in your two minutes, we'll start now. If you'd like to make your comment. Hi there, my name is Alina. I presented last time and uh, really appreciate uh, hearing this presentation. Um, I would like to say that um, I really loved the conversation about um, getting more support for ACC, getting more uh, staff, getting more funding. I feel like that is something that public pressure and public awareness could really help with. But what it comes down to is this presentation said that animal care control no longer wants to take healthy outdoor cats. And that is just so bonkers to me because that is a huge group of cats a very diverse amount of cats. So I work with community cats every single day. I've got over 250 TNR. I know that there are many, many different kinds of cats out there from feral to abandoned to stray. Tons of them are adoptable. Tons of them are not and can stay outside. But right now we're adjusting, we're completely just focused on the adoptable cats, the friendly, healthy cats that don't even have medical problems that prevent their adoption. So it's just wild to me that we are contemplating having a whole group of all cats that are found outside that are healthy be uh, just left outside and abandoned. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And uh, having better um, conversations with 
staff and um, getting finding new solutions and being innovative is going to be really important and we want to know how we can help with that process. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elena, for your, for your comments. Going on to the next caller. Okay, you can make your comment. Your two minutes is beginning now. Yeah, hi, my name is Rebecca Ward and um, I've been involved with feeding feral colonies for um, over 15 years. Um, there's a bit of a contradiction, I think, in the presentation in saying that these free roaming cats outdoors have homes somewhere, they have guardians and they'll just find their way home. At the same time saying, taking them into the shelter, they don't get um, retrieved from the shelter by guardians. So uh, they have guardians or they don't have guardians. Uh, I think a lot more needs to be known about the feral cat colonies that we have, the free roaming cats that are out there. Um, I've heard a lot about, you know, the difficulties of cats being in the shelter, um, but we don't have a lot of information about the outcomes of cats that are not in the shelter, that have not been taken into the shelter. How many of those, you know, are, are able to survive out on the streets, you know, without being hit by cars and eaten by coyotes? And, um, you know, I would just, I would just echo the importance of what the commissioner has brought up about needing more data about the feral colonies here within San Francisco. Um, 2008, a lot of cats showed up that had just been dumped in the difficult economic times that we had then. And we're having those times again. So the proliferation of, um, you know, cats that have just been abandoned, I fear is going to continue to go up um, and wind up with creating a lot more cats that truly are feral. So <clears throat> that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, for your comments. On. Okay, I'm muting the next speaker. Hey, you have your two minutes begins now. You can start your comment, please. Hello. Yes, Marilyn. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I uh, had a couple of points I wanted to uh, just clarify. Uh, why are cats being turned away? Is it just because they are healthy? And is the shelter full? I have heard uh, people say that the shelter is full. And if they're full, what are they full of? Are they full of um, injured animals or um, feral or strays or what? And if you're not taking um, healthy cats, that doesn't seem to make financial sense because if you take in healthy cats, they would be the most adoptable, the turnaround would be quicker and the adoption fees would increase your revenue. So I, the, and one uh, little statistic I read in a book a while back was that 
around the 1990s, approximately 10 million cats were euthanized across the United States. And as of around 2017, that number has dropped to less than 2 million in the entire country. That tells us that the TNR is working. But if you're not taking in the unneutered animals and neutering them, then that direction is going to go in the opposite direction. And we're going to end up with way too many cats again. And that was my comment. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marilyn, for your comments. Okay, going on to our last comment, commenter, excuse me. Okay, your two minutes are starting now. You can start your comment, please. Um, thank you. Um, I want to start by saying thank you to Dr. O'Neill and her staff. It sounds like, you know, they're working real hard and uh, we understand that a lot of city departments are understaffed right now and struggling to to find people to do the work. But, um, you know, just sort of on a personal level, if there's, even if it's only a 2% chance I'm going to find my cat, I want, I want that option for ACC. Um, but Again, on the larger level, I guess, you know, um, I would like to, you know, I'm curious, this is the second meeting I've attended and uh, I, Virginia Donahoe's name came up earlier as meant is listed as the executive director. I'm curious as to why she's not at these meetings and uh, presenting and why Dr. O'Neill has to spend her time uh, doing presentations um, and perhaps there's other work that she could be doing um and um you know thinking about you know obviously you know this is a political city um so what can what can the commission what can the you know what can acc do to advocate you know for animals with the board of supervisors you know who who are the allies there that that we might write to as the public to uh to ask for support you know um so where you know how how do we how do we help them you know understand the importance of what's happening with these community cat programs and other things that are they're trying to keep this you know feral and uh, population down and reunite people with their animals um you know is it a matter of you know taking pictures and contacting 311 every time we see you know uh stray cats and things like that where you know where do those numbers come from that'll help help persuade to get more staff and get the support you know that acc uh needs so those are just uh i guess some of the questions i have and now so maybe what are we doing for the next generation is acc doing school pro school programs or other things that are helping you know kids to understand uh what it means to be responsible with you know our animal companions and animals around us. So <clears throat> those are my questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments. Okay, looks like that is um, all of our speakers. So um, do any um, commissioners have any, any comments or any other questions for Dr. O'Neill before we end this item? I don't see any hands. So, okay, thanks for your presentation. Actually, actually I, oh, yes. I do have one comment. Um, I'm sorry, I can't raise my hand. Can you hear me okay? No, that's okay. Yes, we can. 
um, Commissioner Van Horn. We can hear no, you. I, I just want to agree with the last commenter that we're we're kind of putting Dr. O'Neill in the hot speed hot seat every week, and the person we really should be talking to is you know the director of the of ACC and she hasn't shown up in I think I've been on the commission three years um, maybe her just coming and talking to us about some of these issues would be really beneficial in terms of how we look at things going forward um, just my opinion thanks Dr. Van Horn I just had one kind of follow up and I just want to make sure that this point was clear that there, you know, I took copious notes um, and I will definitely take that back to our management group. And I, I hear what you're saying about the front desk and the script and the, the training. I, I definitely hear that. Um, but I'm also, you know, hearing a lot of leaving cats outside unfixed and those type of things. And I just want to make clear that SPCA has the community cat program for TNR. And it's never been something that ACC has done and um, we work with them closely, um, but it's never been our um, our program. Um, I, you know, to the point that somebody else asked, you know, I uh, about the feral cat numbers and what's going on with the colonies, you know, that hopefully is a question that they can answer better than I can. Um, you know, I have some of the, the same questions, but um, nobody is advocating for T, uh, TNR to go away. Um, we obviously, all of us want that to continue. Um, I'm, I'm guessing they have the same kind of issues as we do as far as staffing and support. And, I, you know, I just can't speak to what the, um, the situation is um, with that particular program at the moment. Um, so I just want to be sure that, you know, some of these questions might be better answered um, by that program uh, because I just can't speak to it. Hopefully that makes sense. Yes. Commissioner Tobin? Um, yeah, I think there is one thing that I'd definitely like to address. Back in 2019, when you presented with the SPCA, it was a joint policy recommendation. And we never really found out because 2020 threw a monkey wrench in there with us being able to really evaluate those numbers. Is this program successful? Is the outcome successful? The one thing that I saw happen is that it diverted cats from coming, kittens from coming into the system until later. And that kept that, maybe it kept the shelter more disease free or less of that, but, but we don't know. And possibly this is impossible to capture, but it was one of the things that we really wanted to evaluate to address the concerns of everybody who's come in here tonight to talk or comment is did this work? Is this a result? Is this policy working for animals or is it impossible to actually know if these animals that were left out there, because that window was shortened, not only for when they could come into the shelter, but when they could not come into the shelter, when they were considered free roaming and needed to be trapped and neutered and released into their own colony. There's been an increase in 2011, or sorry, 2021-22 with cat intake. I it's a, it's a number, but it doesn't have a theory behind why that increase is happening. So I'm I'm trying to say, is there any possibility that this isn't working 
And is there any way to know, or are we just going to be hashing out the same thing? That's, well, that's as far as, yeah, as far as the feral cat issue goes, I mean, again, that's, uh, you know, another question for the community cat program. I mean, we still do have a handful of feral under socialized queens that come in um, with young kittens. And then again, you know, the problem being kind of what to do with them um, while the kittens kind of grow up um, because we really don't want to separate the family, but then keeping them in confinement has a lot of welfare concerns around it, which is why. SPCA changed that policy. Um, so I, I have seen a lot less of that. Um, but again, that they, they were not usually in, in our shelter. They were usually in the other program. Um, I will say that we have seen success and can actually measure, you know, kind of lowering the um, return weight of kittens from foster kind of doing spay neuter a little bit earlier. Um, so that we can move them on, free up the foster homes, you know, that type of thing um, has been really helpful. Um, because they're staying in foster until they're ready, they come back, they immediately get surgery, and then they hit the adoption floor the next day. So that was kind of a just a process change that we made. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with um, the feral issue, um, but I can say that that has been super helpful in kind of moving um, the kittens along at the right age and at the right time. You know, having them come back at the right time. Um, we still have oodles and oodles of underage kittens. We just had our little fall spike. Um, we're back up to like 60 some kittens um, in foster right now. I think only a couple of them have queens. They're mostly, um, uh, they're not bottlers, you know, they're kind of that in between weaned kittens um, that are in foster right now, which is kind of what we expect um, in the fall like this. Um, so, you know, the issue with the feral queens was a welfare issue. Um, and you're right, it was a joint presentation and it was, you know, mostly a decision about their program. Um, you know, I know Virginia has regular meetings with Dr. Scarlett, their director, and, um, you know, they, they agree with the policy change and they support it, but, you know, I'm the one here talking about it, um, for the most part. And, you know, they don't take in, um, cats, you know, that's just not how they do admission. So it's less of a you know, less of an issue for them than it is for us. That makes sense. But the, you know, part of this again, um, as far as TNR goes, is it's never been our program. Um, and there are questions that I can't answer about um, the community cat program that I, I think would be useful to know. Uh, especially the, with the questions that you're asking. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt one more time, but I've been a part of this commission for a long time and seen a lot of people come and go. And I really think it would be more beneficial if Virginia would take her time to come and be a part of this. I mean, you work really hard, Sherry, but a lot of the questions we're asking, she needs to answer. And you know for us to be able to do anything beneficial in this group we kind of needed a direct line of communication and i i think that she should i mean you know all the years i've been here she's never she's never come in and participated once so i'm not sure why i mean i do take everything back to our management group. I do promise you that. I take copious notes. Um, she does watch all of them too. We have a discussion about it. Um, so it's not that she's uninformed of what's going on here. 
I'm sorry, did Arena have a question? Somebody else had a question. I do. I do. Yes, um, Commissioner. What's her name? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, I have a question that kind of came up as I was listening. Um, what happens? Um, does do the ACOs still come and pick up deceased cats? Like how? Like let's say, and and are those cats scanned when, on arrival? So if someone is l looking for their lost animal and they go to the ACC um, website or on site, can they find any information? Yes, um, so they do pick up deceased animals. Um, sometimes it depends on um, their staffing. They may have help from public works um, to pick up the animals. But so far as I know, they all do physically end up at the shelter and then they still have, um, even though it's you know not public facing, obviously, they still have a photo um, and they still get the scan. So they still have an intake. Um, they're just an intake as a DOA, right? Um, and then, um, Typically speaking, um, those remains are on, like, especially if there's a chip, the remains are kind of on hold for what the normal stray hold would be in case someone comes looking. Um, so, yes, they do. And then, you know, they, they check um, all that to see if, we, you know, we can just let the owner know um, what happened. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um just one, um, I have actually one last question and comments. Um, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that, um, that we, after, you know, that we, after hearing public comments have come back with additional questions and stuff, I think that's great. Um, there were a couple of uh, comments that were made and it was something that I was gonna um, ask a question about previous and, um, and didn't, but one thing is um, we talk about the, the, the way the staff um, responds at the front desk, but I think also as well, um, the staff that is responsible for social media as well. Um, probably that can be a point of discussion with, um, with Virginia as well. Uh, I'm talking in particular about that 1, um, Facebook post about the, about the, about the kitten that was found. And, um, and people respond and this was, you know, this was the 1 situation that was brought up during public comment. And was also mentioned during the last meeting, um, and there was a question about whether or not the 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 officer did what was correct or following policy when the officer left the kitten there after rescuing the kitten from from the drain or the pipe. Um, people ask questions in comments asking about um, well, was this the correct thing to do? Should the cat maybe be brought in to be examined? You know what you know what what exactly is the policy as far as that? And um, eventually it was, it was mentioned in the comments that Virginia had said, yes, the cat should have brought, been brought over to SPCA. Um, that's what should have been done. It wasn't done. But prior to that, um, Animal Care and Control responded saying that anyone questioning it was attacking the officer. Um, as opposed to, you know, again, comments could have been um, erased or, you know, removed or deleted, but the way I saw it was that there wasn't anyone attacking the officers. It was basically, you know, people bringing it up and saying, is this really the policy? Should have something different been done? And um, so I'm, I'm just putting that out there as far as it's, you know, I, I think that a lot of, I think if originally what would have, if the response would have been, oh, yes, this is what should have happened as opposed to you're attacking us. Uh, I think that that would have probably went a, a long way. So, anyways, again, just a just a suggestion or just a 
a comment from someone who who saw the post and you know my reaction to no we had a lot of conversations around that cat and that situation and um you know it was kind of a, a a difficult spot for the officer to be in because um you know traditionally we don't pick up they don't pick up healthy stray cats however this was an exigent circumstance which is why they got called out and i think the long and the short of it was you know if you had hens on the cat um then it should have been a tnr kind of you know it doesn't necessarily have to be impounded at our shelter for any reason because if it was you know certainly we'd look at it if it came in make sure it wasn't injured but um you know talking with our partners across the street about getting the guy um uh neutered and released since he was already kind of trapped quote unquote um so you know i think it was an oversight in the minute i i think you know some of the other comments about you know the acos are always having pictures with the wildlife and things like that and i think that's just because it's selectively interesting <laughs> to the public um they bring in plenty of cats um it just doesn't kind of make the social media real um because it's not as sensational as unusual species i, I would just say that um so i i think it kind of depends on you know if it's an interesting if the person that's kind of selecting what goes out there on social media thinks it's an interesting story or not or if it's just kind of a run-of-the-mill impound that nobody is concerned about it may not make the news um but it absolutely is still happening yeah and uh, just to clarify too the comment that i had about about the the comments on that facebook post were not so much about the actions of the officer right um it was more was about the response right. from acc concerning the comments okay yeah. thank you Okay, well, I guess uh, we're done with this presentation. Um, Dr. O'Neill, uh, thanks again for the discussion and for all the work you did into this. And thanks to our attendees for the public comments. Uh, I know this presentation as well as last month's presentations have made for long meetings, and I really appreciate everyone's interest and time spent on this important matter. We look forward to our November meeting in which panelists from both meetings will be invited to attend for this con a continuation of discussion. So, okay, so moving on to old business, reporting from Animal Care and Control uh, with Dr. O'Neill, Animal Care and Control Report uh, regarding outcomes for animals and ongoing um, operations. Dr. O'Neill, if you have anything to report, um, please feel free to start. You guys wanna listen to me talk even more. Um, I will keep it very brief. I will just give you the rundown of what is happening today. Um, we uh, did have a, a little bit of a situation um, that was the end of September. Um, we had a series of um, ill geese uh, coming in and I've kind of been watching for things to start happening in the wildlife with um, the bird flu and avian influences. I'm sure you've all heard is around us and um, we had the geese tested and they were positive for high path avian influenza. So bird flu is officially um, present in San Francisco County. Um, so we've had a lot of chats with our partners about biosecurity and how birds are coming in and, um, you know, unfortunately what that means for some of the high risk wild birds, which are mostly the geese and um, what kind of falls in the category of, of dabbling ducks. So the ducks that kind of stay on the surface that have kind of the flat bill, not necessarily the diving ducks or the shorebirds, those, those types. Um, but they often um, are either ill or they can be super spreaders, um, even if they appear healthy. So um, we've really had to pivot um, and write a whole new protocol about how birds come into the shelter. Um, you know, we're also concerned about the pigeons and the chickens um, and making sure that we're not um, 
passing anything along to our partners that pull our birds. So um, we're taking a lot of extra precautions. Um, so it might be a little unusual if um, someone brings a bird um, to the shelter, you know, they're asked to wait outside and then there's a variety of PPE that the staff needs to wear and we're all just being very careful. I'm not as concerned about humans getting sick, although that is obviously um, a big concern that the virus could kind of jump and then start to be spread among people. Hopefully that won't happen. Um, but it can be a very serious issue with the birds um, in our community. So, um, you know, what's one more pandemic to have to deal with, right? Like we've been through monkeypox, we had to do something for that. And now here we are with ivy and flu. It's all good. Um, so when I'm looking at the daily shelter count, I'm realizing there's things in weird places. So because we had to separate all the birds by species, we now have pigeons that reside in what's called the photo studio. So I'm looking at the report and seeing there's a bird in the photo studio. And this is just kind of a an extra room that's next to the volunteer office that we've had to use for now housing birds. So um, all that is to say, we do have um, nine birds on site. Um, we have 70 cats on site and we have 94 dogs on site, which is way over our capacity for dogs. I think I mentioned we had a hoarding case of 35 dogs coming in all at once. Um, luckily, most of them are in fairly good physical health. Um, and, uh, you know, we do have some some shy ones that need a little bit of socialization, but um, we're slowly working through that case at the moment. Um, and then we have kind of an uptick in cat and kittens in foster. We're up to 58 in foster, one bird, um, three dogs, which are puppies as a result of the hoarding case, um, and seven others, which are bunnies, also left over from our bunny hoarding case. Um, we don't have space for them. They're a little young. They need to grow up a little bit before they can get altered. All the ones that are in-house, I can probably say, are altered. Um, it's just you can't see them on the adoption floor because they're in a whole nother room because we have no space in the actual rabbit room um, for them. But they um, are available and their key pictures are on the website. Um, so that's kind of the big update for me in the last month. Are there any questions about that? Commissioner, was it right? Is that the uh, hand you have up or is that an old hand? <laughs> That's from before. I forgot to lower it. Okay. Do any commissioners have any questions? Okay. Uh, seeing none, uh, let's move on to uh, public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a comment on this agenda item should hit star three on their phone to be added to the speaker's queue. Let me check and see if we have any. Okay, looks like we do have a couple speakers. I'm going to go ahead and start public comment. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and mute this caller. Okay, you can start your comment. Your two minutes are beginning now. Hi, this is Maria Conlin again. I just wanted to let you know that um, a few people alerted me that they were not able to make public comment after the presentation. So, um, I don't know, I guess they put their hand up, but they didn't get called on. So, I just wanted to let you know that they might be trying after this one. That's all. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you. I checked. I seemed to have hit or called on everybody that had um, their hand up. So if there was anyone that wasn't able to make comments, um, I, we can make comment at this time, okay? Thank you. Okay, going on to the next caller. 
Okay, and, and thanks Maria for that update, um, for that notification rather, I should say. Yeah, I'm gonna unmute this caller. If you have two minutes to make your comment, you can start now. Oh, thanks, I had to call back a few times. This is Damia Fodi. Um, I help people find lost cats and I can definitely tell you the public thinks the first thing they always say on Nextdoor and Pawboo, Facebook, is bring them to the shelter. And I'm now telling people, oh, can you kind of hold on to them? And it's hard for a lot of people. They just can't or won't. And they do need help. It took us 71 days to find, oh, excuse me, 71 days Ninja was found within a block and a half. Someone else brought him to the shelter. We were trying everything. So that case only worked because the shelter was open. Just last week, someone called me and said, my garden kitty, this cat that visits, the community cat maybe, whatever, was gone, showed up, totally ill, had a puncture mark on its head, was sick. I called ACC and they said, yeah, because he's ill, you can bring bring her in, but we can't. Then I asked, well, if if she's too sick, will you let me know, like, if you're going to help her or if you're going to say it's too much and then maybe we'll help her? And they refused. The person acted nice on the phone but said, no, we can't call you. So I said, so basically I'm going to bring this ill cat in, but you can't tell me if you're going to euthanize her. And um, I want to help this cat. So we now, of course, I Tony's. Tony's Rescue, Andrea's Dream, um, Maria Give Me Shelter, all these little, you know, can-do organizations are taking on the responsibilities. And the public tries, but they do need San Francisco ACC to remain open and partner and continue to partner. Uh, yes, also Oakland does a great thing. They actually post on Paw Boost. Every cat that comes in, they post on Paw Boost. So I'm on their monitoring and it's amazing the reunions that are happening. I know that's like a manual thing, but something to consider. Another thing is one of my dear cats is a clipped eared cat that I got from someone else who couldn't keep her and she would definitely need help getting home. I mean, she's gotten out once and it was almost impossible to get her. Like if she were ever brought into the shelter, she'd be healthy and they would say, no, bring her back outside and it would be devastating. So thank you so much for listening. Everyone's doing such a great job on commenting. Thank you. Thank you, Jenya. You're going on to our next caller. Your two minutes are starting. You can give your comment now. Hi, uh, this is Andrea again from Andrea's Dream Rescue, and I a thousand percent agree that I think Virginia needs to step in on these calls because I think that a lot of the issues that are occurring are front of house, which the veterinarian staff really does not have the time or the effort and shouldn't be the ones dealing with that. Um, I think there's many questions for her that all of us have. And I think it's time that she takes a tighter notch on what she has going on there and starts to answer and give us give us all of the um, information that we think, you know, that we need to be able to get these questions answered. Because at this point, I don't feel like it's really the, the veterinarian staff that should be the ones that handle that, that first intake and that first point of contact that our community has when they're coming to ACC. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Andrea, for your comments. 
going on to the next color. Okay, Polly, you have two minutes to make your call, your your comment, please. Hi, uh, my name is Amy Jones, and I uh, I'm a rescuer in the community. I I foster cats and I trap for TNR, and I um and I do a lot of rescue and bring in cats and kittens to ACC. And uh, you know, during the presentation, her talking about you know having a conversation with the front desk and, 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 you know, figuring out the best outcome for the animal and what, what you know, what is best for the cat. That's really important. And I am treated like, you know, I, I'm, I'm asked why, why did you, why did you rescue these kittens? Why, you know, like earlier this spring, I rescued a, a litter of five week old kittens and I called to make an appointment. I had kept them at my house for a couple of weeks to, to socialize them because, you know, ACC also, you know, they want, they want socialized kids, not the socialized. So I felt that I kind of did them a favor by holding them for a couple of weeks. And when I called, I was, I was asked, well, why did you trap them? Why do you want to bring them in here? And, and then I was told that I kept them too long and that I would have to pay an owner surrender fee. And I just, um, I just don't understand why they're not working with people to 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 help these kittens and cats. I mean, I mean, aren't we? Don't we all have the same goal here to 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 get the best outcome for them, not to just interrogate people that are trying to help animals. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, I brought in. Uh, I had trapped a a, a mother, um, and she had two week old kittens, and she had her kittens. Um, in a box in a salvage yard, uh, like on top of this shelf, just completely out in the open. They had taken down the box with a forklift and found these these baby kittens. And I brought them in. I didn't make an appointment because it was an emergency. And those kittens couldn't be put back where they were. And when I got to the shelter, I was told, like, well, why, why did you bring them in here? And, you know, and then, and then, you know, we, we can't take a mom in a trap. And, and I said, I understand, but th this is an emergency. These kittens can't go back where they were. And then the front desk person told me to, that I should put the mother back and that they would take the kittens. These are two week old kittens that still needed their mother. And, it, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I, I, I don't understand why it, it, it's not working with, they're not working with the community. They're, they're just, gatekeepers at the door saying no to everybody and I have to like I mean I got the mom and kittens in but I had to stand there and keep telling them no this is an emergency it's an emergency it's an emergency and this this mom and kittens end up going to a rescue you know and and so I just I I, I can't understand these policies it just seems like with their numbers over the years uh, their numbers are not you know they haven't been super high they've been steady for the last decade what why why are you all of a sudden refusing? Um, your two minutes are okay. up, okay? Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you for your comment, Amy. Going on to the next caller. Okay, you can make your comment. Your two minutes have begun. Caller, can you hear me? Okay, I'm going to mute this caller. 
because it doesn't appear to be on, this person doesn't appear to be on the line. Okay, going to the next caller. Okay, call, you've been unmuted. Your two minutes begin now. Hello, everyone. Hello, Thank you, uh, Thank you for all the work you do. Uh, my name is Galina. Uh, I'm a newer San Francisco rescue. Um, in the past, uh, I was working with a San Jose rescue who was helping me to uh, rehome animals, which I was rescuing and uh, fostering and taking care of. Uh, so I'm new on arena, but after listening, uh, everything and all the comments, um, something, what I wanted to add is, uh, as I understood, the policy has changed. So it was not the case before. So I, I'm, I just wonder what made it, what made you guys to change it and why not at least scan and spay neuter. Uh, you know, these healthy cats rather than just leaving them outside. And uh, just another point to add on top of everything what was already said is about the front desk training. I think like majority of people don't know about the community cat program. Um, I really like another uh, person's comment about working with community together. I think San Francisco has a lot of compassionate people and why not call on them and just you know if you don't have physically space uh, you know call on people to yeah, foster, offer um, help in rehoming because people are afraid maybe due to different reasons maybe they have their own animals or maybe they travel a lot and they don't have time for like long time commitment, but they can, you know, help short time to help an animal in need. Or maybe, you know, people shouldn't be giving animals to random people, but they afraid because they don't have resources to rehome. Maybe at least refer them to, you know, local rescues to help with rehoming. Let's say people foster themselves at their own houses, but then, you know, it's what I was doing. Uh, another rescue was helping me to rehome, you know, they were helping me with scanning and stuff like that. Just, I just think that, you know, we need to educate our community because they don't know about lots of programs and just telling and calling on people and just working together. I think that something would, would be considered. Thank you for your comment. Karina. Okay, I think we have one more caller. Okay, you can make your comment. Your two minutes have begun. Hi there, um, I'm Patricia Briggs. I want to thank Dr. O'Neill for a very enlightened and caring um, speech and very comprehensive. And I, I do agree with everyone that uh, Virginia Donahue should address these problems with the, we've all dealt with some of the rude staff and inconsistencies. One says one thing, another says another at ACC. Um, and she should uh, uh, deal with them. I know that uh, back in the 90s when we worked on the live animal market issue, Carl Friedman, who was then the director of animal control, um, was at every meeting. Um, and I think a lot of the problems with the feral cats that we don't address is that it's really the public. It's kind of like the public is, some people are just so ignorant. They think that the only 
worthy cat is a little soft, cute fuzzball, and same with the soft, cute fuzzball dog. And they don't realize that um, older animals um, are just as worthy, and they don't want them. Um, you know, it's like a lot of people go to zoos and they see in the children's zoo barnyard, they want to see baby animals in the window. Well, they don't realize that baby animals may be cute, but it's not a good sign if baby animals are in the barnyard window because it means their mothers are not taking care of them. So the public is just woefully ignorant, and, and the whole thing with this issue is prevention. You know, we have to get out there in, in these communities like uh, Dr. Van Horner was saying in Tulare County and all the Central Valley, which is a nightmare with feral animals, and the, the roadkill rate there is horrendous. Um, We've got to go out there and, and provide uh, low-cost uh, spay-neuter clinics and, and free ones and, because, uh, and, and really educate and, and do preventive work because um, it's a people, this is a one-time only cost, you know, and uh, if, if you, in my book, if you can have a car or a cell phone or a computer, then you can afford to spay or neuter your animal. So um, we have to start working on prevention. So, um, and also one last thing I wanted to thank Rebecca. Um, I think we all need to start using the word guardian instead of owner because uh, we don't own animals. We are their guardian. We own our house. We own our purse, whatever, but we do not own animals. So that's what I wanted to contribute. Thank you, Patricia, for your comments. Okay, public comment is that's the last comment. So public comment is now closed for this agenda item. Okay, thank you again, Dr. O'Neill, for your report. Okay, moving on to um, commission governments. The commission will vote on a resolution allowing to continue to remove remotely. Okay, tonight we are going to vote on the resolution to allow us to com to continue to meet remotely. As the resolution covers the 30-day period, this resolution we will vote for will apply to tonight's meeting as well as our next meeting, which falls on November 10th. The text of the resolution has been uploaded to our website as a supporting document for tonight's meeting. Um, are there any questions before we open it for public comments? Vote on the resolution. Okay, I don't see any questions from commissioners, and I don't see any public comment as well. So we can vote on the resolution, making findings to allow teleconference meetings under California Government Code Section 54953E. When I call your name, please state yes if you're in favor of approving the resolution or no if you're not in favor. Commissioner Chan. Yes. Commissioner Fortier. Yes. Commissioner Ozenar. Yes. Commissioner Tobin. Yes. And Commissioner Van Horn. Commissioner Van Horn, you're muted. Was that a yes? Okay. Okay, thank you. This resolution has been approved. Moving on to items to be put on the agenda for future commission meetings. Our next meeting will be held on Thursday, November 10th. This meeting will be held remotely. Please reach out to me by the Friday before our next meeting with any proposed agenda items and any supporting documents for our next meeting. That will be by Friday, November 4th. The agenda and any supporting documents provided by the commission by that time will be uploaded to our website by the Monday evening before the meeting. So for our next meeting, that will be Monday, November 7th. 
Next month's agenda will include a continuation of our discussion on CATS and admissions policy at SFACC, ongoing reporting and sharing of news and special events from SFACC and the July through September 2022 quarterly report and commissioner work plans for the new year and commission officer nominations. Do any commissioners have any questions or anything else to add? Okay, seeing none, if there's nothing further, we can adjourn. Uh, thanks to everybody for attending tonight's long meeting um, and for being a part of it. It is 9.06 p.m. and we are now officially adjourned. Okay, good night, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank, good you. Night. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, everybody.